This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, to create a place where addicts and alcoholics are treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience in treating alcoholism and addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They also offer a as comfortable a detox as possible, which is the best news if you're kicking heroin or benzos or alcohol or crack or coke. A comfortable detox is always preferable. They have amazing amenities, including... The sweat lodge, the sound bath meditation, the equine therapy, surfing, you name it, they got it. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California for help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. Somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is so widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorders since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable, handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who might worry about your well-being. As an exclusive offer for our Dopey listeners, you email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey, and you'll get $50 off your device. Do it for someone who cares. Get some help in staying off the sauce. That's info at soberlink.com. Mention Dopey and get 50 bucks off your device. All right. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by New Harbor at Hingham. And if you, you need to know something about New Harbor at Hingham, it's a sober house. And my friend, Justin, who's part of the Dopey Nation, who's been on Dopey, and who most importantly places the Toodles for Chris Dopey scholarship people with free treatment, this is his sober living. So I want you guys, if you're, if you're planning on getting sober near Massachusetts, please check out his place. It is called New Harbor at Hingham. It's a sober living home for men in Hingham, Massachusetts. New Harbor, again, is led by Dopey Superfan and Scholarship Chair Justin and his business partner, Eric. 
Justin and Eric are professionals in long-term recovery who realize their dream through sobriety, and they are building a supportive community to help other men do the same. They support clients and their families through individualized recovery plans, monitoring, and family coaching. Learn more at newharborhingham.com slash dopey. Support Justin. Check it out. And as always, this episode of Dopey, most importantly, is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of Patreon. Basically, if you love Dopey and you love what we're doing and you love the show, please contribute to the Dopey Patreon. It is the way that we can make more Dopey and it is the way that I could do this full time. This is my 100% plea call to action to get you guys to kick a few bucks down to support the show. I would really appreciate it. Also, we are selling gear at DopeyPodcast.com. The new crazy fire Nick's Dopey shit is now available in tee, tank, and long sleeve. We got tons of hoodies, tons of long sleeves, lots of stuff at DopeyPodcast.com. I just sold out my last Oyve hat, but there are more coming. So if you want a blue and red Dopey snapback or a blue and orange Dopey snapback, you want an Oyve hat, I'm going to have them this week. You want stickers, just hit me up on Venmo and I have all that shit. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. It's a miracle. It's taken many years to get this man on the phone. And uh, I can't, I I don't know what to say about this guest, except it's wall-to-wall fucking Dopey. His name is Ryan Leone. He is a writer. He's been to prison. He's been on heroin. He's sold drugs. He's done it all. And uh, it's a pleasure to have him finally on Dopey. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's crazy because we talked, I think, I think it was Chris who I initially talked to a couple years ago, right? It wasn't you. Did we, did we establish that already? I, I didn't establish it on the show, and I don't think we established it. Did you reach out to him, or did he reach out to you? I don't remember. I think that we're both like, it's like drug addict memory shit right now that's going on. Like, I don't, I honestly, I don't remember. No, I know. Both of, I mean, like, I like try to hustle. I try to get dopey to as many places as I can. I'm like the foothills next to the mountain range that is the Ryan Leone hustle. And the thing about Ryan also is like, he reminds me of Chris. You remind me of Chris. You, you came up in Massachusetts. You, uh, he went to 25 fucking rehabs. He did three prison terms in California. I know Chris would have loved to meet you and would have loved to compare stories. And uh, I know um, I'm psyched to hear you on the show. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm, I'm super happy to be here. I enjoyed the free before the show. So, um, so let's get into it. First question is, or first thing is, like, I think... Chris came up ADD also, so like you came up ADD and on uh, all sorts of uh, drugs. Were you on Adderall and Ritalin as a kid? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning. Um, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but 
and I'm an only child. We moved out to California, Santa Barbara, California, when I was three years old. And I, right away, it was pretty evident that there was something wrong with my brain. My ADD was debilitating. Now, this was in the era where ADD was, was, was vastly overprescribed, and they were putting everybody on Ritalin. At five years old, they suggested to my parents that I should be on Ritalin. My parents, at that point, ironically enough, I had a pill-taking phobia. I didn't like, you know, a lot of people don't like the feeling of swallowing a pill. So my parents would crush up Ritalin and put it in my applesauce. And I figured it out one day. I like, was, like, took a scoop of my applesauce. I was like, what the fuck? It was all sour. And I, I realized there was little crushed-up pieces of pills inside of my applesauce. That was my introduction to drugs. And in my personal opinion, it was a confluence of factors, of course, the perfect storm. It's not hereditary in my family. There's no addiction. There's no alcoholism. But ADD and being on Ritalin at a young age, I think, warped me neurologically and gave me this, like, insatiable appetite to, to use drugs. And on top of that, I learned how to read and write at a much slower pace than my peers. So I always felt completely inadequate and I felt insecure. Those insecurities trailed me all the way to high school until I found drugs. And that's the, and then, you know, that's, it's the, per- that's where the it started. Right. It's the, um, it's the perfect addict storm, right. Of feeling you had the real perfect addict storm of feeling insecure, feeling less than, and being on drugs at a young age. I mean, that, you know, that's a lot to swallow. The, the real question I want to know is, can you eat applesauce? Like, do you eat applesauce now? Do you give your son applesauce? Or is applesauce out? I just, I just crush up Ritalin and feed it to him. Right. Uh, the, the, the applesauce is optional. No. Um, yeah, he likes applesauce. We give him a little, like, shooter things from, um, from Subway. You know the little, like, single pouches? I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. But, yes, we give him applesauce. I think, unfortunately, that he does have ADD, just like me. I'll never put him on medication, man, ever. I learned that lesson. I think that it's an issue that's not talked about nearly enough. Um, This this insanity, this chemical dependency that I developed at 15, put me in prison three times, it just fundamentally destroyed my life, I think started with those medications. And when I got to high school, I started smoking pot, started drinking, started taking LSD, mushrooms, you know, all the, all the PG 13 drugs that people do in the beginning. And it was like instantly, I just felt outside of my head and I was more comfortable there. I never liked weed. It actually made me more insecure, but I liked it compared to my reality. I liked it better than my reality, even though I felt more insecure on marijuana. And that's like the weird paradox with that. But what it was, was my early addict mind just knowing that I liked chasing an alternate reality like that. And I started getting in a lot of trouble. I got expelled from three schools within the span of one month in high school. My parents didn't know what to do. You know, we were upper middle class. So, and we weren't always like that. My dad really started making good income when I was probably 12, 13 years old. 
sent me to private junior high at that point. I, I grew up in public school. Then I went back to public school in high school. Three school expulsions in the spell in the span of a month, all for drug related stuff, getting caught with with weed, fist fights because I'm drunk at school, stuff like that. My parents were doing what a lot of parents do, uh, you know, when you're in that that socioeconomic tier. And they sent me away to programs for troubled adolescents. These two burly guys came and escorted me in the middle of the night, took me to a place called Seuss in Idaho. It was in Boise, Idaho. It was a survival school. It's like a wilderness program. A lot of kids have gone to them. Um, I had to learn how to make fire out of sticks with a bow drill set. But what's really important about that specific event, getting sent to that place, is the second day I was there, I saw a kid slit his wrist in front of me. And what he did is he, they would give you a can of peaches when you go to this program. I think that the concept that they told us was that it would like, it was like a detoxification. This wasn't like a residential treatment or medical detox that we go to, you know, later on in life. Most of the kids that are there coming off fairly innocuous substances, you know? Um, so you eat this entire can of peaches and I guess in theory it's supposed to detox, you know, it's, it's supposed to offer some sort of detoxification. This kid took the peach can lid, serrated it on a rock, made sharp edges. And he said, I'd rather die than be here. And I saw him cut his wrist all the way to his elbow. That's Blood just started squirting out of his arms. What I want to know is first of all, like what was the effect of seeing that? on a 15-year-old boy in the woods, first of all? You know, at the time, I probably didn't have the emotional maturity to even really understand what that was, you know? Um, I probably just took it at face value. I'm like, wow, that's that's an awfully Im- ugly image, you know? That's how I, I was looking at it as, I recognized it as something that made me queasy or that I didn't like. I don't know if I really understood what the implications were because like I said, I didn't have the emotional or intellectual maturity at that point. Now that I'm 35 years old, looking back in hindsight, I think it was traumatic because I didn't realize, but the implications behind that of what it means to be suffering to the point where you have to, where you want to end your own life, something that I can relate with that I felt since then. And I think that's maybe that emotional maturity came from. But at that point, I think I just took it as something ugly. I took it as face value, you know, um, because of a lack of, I don't know, cognitive development at that point. I just couldn't process it. Let's let's. Well, before, before, when we're kind of figuring out if you spoke to me or Chris first, you were talking about the way drug addict memory works. And when I look back at the past, I find it very difficult. I, I used, you know, benzos hardcore for years and years, and my memory's not great. Like, when you think back to that story, and you're 15, and the serrated fucking peach edges, and the dude's hand, and the dude's wrist, and the blood, what kind of picture do you have? when you? Because you have to reflect on these stories all the time. What's your memory like? You know... It's a great question. And people ask me that all the time because that's what I do for a living. I'm a professional storyteller now, whether I do it on YouTube or whether I do it by writing. 
all those years in rehabs, you mentioned 25 rehabs, three prisons. What happened is I recycled these stories. I told them so many fucking times I know that it preserved it in yes. my mind. Yes. So I see it even, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I see it very clearly because I've been able to maintain it from recycling it by telling it so many times, you know? It's so funny because it's like, it's like telephone in your own brain. Like you told a story that gets retold and retold and retold. And now it's the story. The story is the entity. And the story is the impact that that thing had on you. But who knows what it was then? It's just crazy the way that works. You know what I mean? And, and that's, yeah, it, absolutely. And that's why it's an interesting question because nobody's asked me that. I've told this story a million times on podcasts, whatever. Nobody's ever asked me like, well, how did that make you feel? You know? And to be honest with you, I don't, I don't, like I said, I don't really know. I know. It's fucking you know, crazy I, though. It, you know, it was, it, you know, and it was foreshadowing a whole shitload of carnage that would come later seeing people get their, you know, faces slit with razor blades and people getting stabbed in the back in federal prison and riots and all the stuff that I've seen past that. But that was my introduction to brutality and also suffering, you know, understanding suffering on like a really human level, but not really being able to process it, just kind of intuitively recognizing that as severe pain. And now that I'm older, knowing what that pain actually was. I think another interesting thing out of it to me is like the things that you bring up right now are really violent stories, right? That's a violent story. The razor blades is a violent story. I heard you, I've, you know, I've, I've been pretty immersed in Ryan Leone. I've read the novel. I've watched your YouTube. I've heard you on other podcasts. I've heard a lot of violent stories. I want to know how related the violence was with the drug use. Like, cause I know when I, I mean, I'm a pussy, I grew up in middle-class New York City. I was safe. I was a stoner. I I wouldn't have been able to do heroin without cable TV. So violence (laughs) never really entered my fucking world. How how aligned with violence was your beginnings of doing drugs? I don't don't know if there was a relationship between violence and drug use. I don't know if these, these... you know, uh, traumatic events that happened early on. I don't know if they necessarily exasperated my addiction. I don't, I don't know what I think honestly, and this sounds lame, but it's just the truth is I embraced the culture and that's what, that's what tugged me to the absolute pits. I'm like, I thought that, that the rock star lifestyle was cool I idolized writers that were junkies and a lot of it was for attention. I'm like, look, I'm smoking crack, you know, and I'd like the attention that people gave me because people would be like, it was a strong reaction. Yeah. And being an only child, I was always seeking validation and trying to get attention from my family and drug addiction was the ultimate way to get it from my peers. You know, I was always like the class clown and I was always a jester. And a lot of times, looking back in high school, I'd be throwing up, you know, while everybody's laughing at me and I'm suffering. But 
I'm everybody's court jester because I'm just the little kid that'll drink a fifth in a night. And I didn't realize then that I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And I was doing it because that's really what I just wanted was people to pay attention to me. Totally. And, and you're getting the attention. And when it turns from drinking the fifth to smoking crack to smoking heroin, all of a sudden it's, holy shit, that dude's crazy. That dude's hardcore. That dude's a legend. And it goes with the rock star thing and it becomes this great identity. Not to mention that the chemicals themselves make us feel like everything is coming up us. You know what I mean? It's like, it's it's such a mix. What was the drug that you, if, if weed made you feel more neurotic or insecure, what was the drug that really you fell in love with first? Cocaine. Okay. Cocaine. Absolutely. It, my cocaine was my first love. And I got out of that program. I was like in those programs for like nine months the first time. Saw a lot of bad stuff happen there. I saw a girl um, cut open the inside of her arm and muscle came out of it. Like literally muscle spilled out of it. She was a self mutilator. I was around a lot of people that had been sexually abused. A lot of girls that had eating disorders, um, a lot of just people that had worse situations than me. And when I got out of all of that, I was like, well, I'm a partier. You know, I'm not fucked up like that. I don't cut myself. There was a kid in there that fucked dogs. And I was like, well, that sets the bar pretty high. Like, I, you know, it, I'm not that bad. So all I'm doing is having a good time, you know, and when I got out of all that, I used that as like a point of reference and I kept going, you know, I was like, well, I just got sent away for, you know, I almost felt like I just did a prison term or something. I got out again, used it as attention that I had gotten sent away. I'm this big badass kid. That's so bad. I have to be institutionalized. And I grew my hair down to my ass. No, I, I never grew my hair out. But, um, when I got out of that, I was at, uh, a San, I was at Santa Barbara high school. I'd gotten expelled from it. They let me back when I was 16. And I was hanging out with some girls. They were seniors. I was a sophomore. They're like, let's go smoke a cigarette. Go out to the bleachers. They're hitting Coke out of a bullet. I don't know what that is. You know, I'd never seen a bullet in my life. And they're snorting it. And they're like, do you want some? I didn't even, you know, I'm like, I'm in that passivity thing where I'll do anything. And I remember taking that first bump and that was it. I hear that AA meetings all the time when I would go to meetings, but I would always hear people say that first drink was what I was searching for my entire life. That first bump of cocaine was cathartic for me. All of a sudden, not only was I not insecure, I thought I was some sort of fucking deity. You know, I was like, I like ripped my shirt off and I felt like I was some sort of God. I really did. And I got this complex where I would chase that inflated ego. At the time, I had access to my parents had got me savings bonds for college. $500 savings bonds, thousand. I had stacks of them. I had unlimited amounts of money in high school, it seemed. And I was doing an eight ball a day. Again, I didn't realize that I was different than anyone because people would snort coke with me on a Friday and be weekend warriors, and then they'd stop. Not me. I kept doing it 
throughout the week daily. And that's not an exaggeration. A lot of my friends, because people ask me, they're like, do you exaggerate things on YouTube? People that know me in real life would say that I minimize how bad my problem was. So I'm just giving like a modest estimate. I think I was doing about a ball a day. At, at that point, I'd start selling it. I'm getting nosebleeds from it. Um, I mean, I was a severe, like a real deal cocaine addict, not like I'm going to get an eight ball a couple times a week. It was every single day. And I started smoking crack when I was 16 as well. Someone showed me how to free base. Um, and I got really into that. At, uh, I got expelled again when I was a sophomore. I got arrested at school. I got caught with like a quarter pound of weed or something. I was selling drugs by that point, you know. And I started dating a girl when I was 17 that was a Coke dealer. Her dad was this biker guy, and he was getting kilos. So at that age, because I was a minor, he was having me drive around being a runner for him because he knew that if I got arrested, I wasn't going to go to prison, you know? And he knew that I'd keep my mouth shut, or at least he thought that, and I did. I never got caught or anything. But one night, she's 21 when I'm 17. And that's like a big deal. Like I'm dating a college girl when I'm in high school. Great. She's picking, yeah, she's picking me up like in a convertible uh, at school. She had like this, I don't even remember the, the kind of car it was, but it was a convertible with like leopard upholstery. Awesome. And I felt really cool. Now, both of us were complete dope fiends, you know, and she saw me one night twacked out on Coke, peeking out the window, which... I would do for many, many years. I'm sure you can relate to that. And she's like, you should smoke this opium. She gave me black tar heroin for the first time on aluminum foil. Had me chase the dragon. I did not know that that was heroin. And that was another profound um, drug you know, moment. Experience. Yes. Yeah, it's a big, moment, a big like milestone there. I got addicted to it daily habit at 17 my parents gave up custody of me i go to an orphanage i get sent back to utah i get out of that place i graduate high school somehow um you know while i'm at this program when i got sent back to those programs in utah i went there twice um idaho utah and then i go back to utah the second time and then my parents i had gotten writing published when i was in high school i got my first short story got published when i was nine and it was Goosebumps fan fiction. And like out of this huge national contest, I won. It was like the only thing that I've ever won in my life. And so my parents would encourage me to be a writer. And I was I always just I don't know. I, I didn't think that it was that it was cool. You know, I thought that it was kind of like a dorky thing to be good at. So I didn't really embrace it. And then in high school, I was taking poetry classes. And my 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 poetry, the teacher was like, wow, this is really good. I bet I can get this published. I got two poems published and they were giving me like $3,000. I got $1,500 for one of them and 3000 for another one. I actually made money from writing in high school. And like at that point, that's like a lot of money for me to be making legally. But still, I like ignored the writing thing. When I got out of that program, my parents are like, okay, you got to do something. You got to go to college. I didn't want to. So they found this program for me in, in Massachusetts, in Worcester, Mass. It was a writing internship program where they would teach me how to write screenplays for TV shows. And um, I'd have to go work at a public access channel. 
I met a girl out there, my first love, and we got into drugs immediately. And I started going into the ghettos and scoring. Now, I had like a goatee and like long hair. I looked like a hippie. I looked like a hippie college kid at that point. Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I have questions. You're going too fast and I have questions. The The first time you went to the wilderness, what drugs did your parents catch you taking in that you weren't on coke yet and you weren't on heroin yet? I got expelled from three schools within a month for smoking weed and for fighting. So it was more behavioral. It wasn't for drugs. It was, okay. a, it was and, for and, behavior. And was there any, like, were there drug addicts at that thing that were like, oh, shit, coke this, dope that, whatever, that when you came back, you kind of had it set up? Not really. You know, it was typical drug, high, you know, high school druggies. You were you know? just you were just on this fucking path, but it's amazing that you got sent to this place pre fucking crack, pre dope, pre everything, pre drug dealing. All right, and now yeah. let's get back to Worcester. And you're aware in Worcester they pronounce it Worcester, correct? Worcester. Okay, yeah. okay. Let's get back there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so out there, I in, and it was a cool scene out there. I hung out with artists and like. They showed me cool music I didn't know about. They turned me on to like the Velvet Underground and they showed me like, you know, turned me on to cool art and like showed me what transgressive literature looked like. And I started just getting into this kind of little, I guess, hipster scene before it was a hipster thing. Started doing a lot of drugs out there. I started scoring drugs in the ghettos. I got burned a lot. I learned how to maneuver in those ghettos. And I got addicted to snorting China white heroin out here in California. They got black tar, you know, the gooey heroin out here. And then out there you got the China white that would come in bundles or the little waxed envelopes, with the stamps on it. Yeah. And I, I, in, so I started snorting it, these little teeny bumps, you know, and I suspect looking back, it was probably fentanyl before that was even a big thing because that's, you know, now I can recognize a big difference between the two. Um, and I had learned going into the ghettos and, and believe me, I'm very anti-racist. I'm, I'm all about equality, but I had learned that the Puerto Rican dudes sell heroin and the black dudes sell crack. Don't ask the black guys for heroin. You're going to get burned, right? That was just the rule of thumb, at least on that street in Worcester. Well, it was was like that in downtown L.A. too, but continue, except it was Mexicans, right? What's interesting is it's changed now. Now the black dudes downtown are selling heroin. It's totally weird now. It it used to be all Pisces down there. Now it's black guys. It's it's really changed downtown L.A. It's it's, it's odd. Yes, you're right. It was like that for a long time. I'm sure when you were out here, it was still like that. It's totally all the black dudes have it down there. It's very interesting how that shifted. Uh, But that's that's new. That's within the last three or four years, you know, and it used to be exactly like you're saying. Um, anyway, so you're in, you're in fucking mass, you're on powder dope and you're snorting. Do- and you're snorting dope. Now I like when you talk about this, uh, art drug world, like, was that the introduction to, you know, junkie musicians, junkie writers, junkie yeah. art, that sort yes. of thing? Yeah. Yes. I fell in love with that archetype. And I started watching like movies like Sid and Nancy and I started reading William S. Burroughs and I started reading, uh, you know, Irvine Welsh and I 
don't know if I was reading Jerry Stahl at that point, but you know, that kind of shit, transgressive fiction. I was listening to a lot of like old obscure Pink Floyd that I'd never heard on vinyl. And they're just showing me cool shit. We're listening to Brian Jonestown massacre. And like, it was a, it was a cool ass scene. Right. And, um, anyway, one night, so now I'm completely strung out. I'm with this girl, first love. She's bulimic, so she has her own demons, and I we're just kind of become this classic druggy couple, very toxic, very codependent. We get strung out on snorting heroin. At this place, they give you eighty dollars a week stipend. It's like an allowance, right? So we put our money together and we like get a bundle. We'd sell a couple bags to people. We're just doing, you know, the typical, you know, um, uh, entry level junkie shit. Right. And so one night we're dope sick. I go to the street. The only dude on there's a black guy. Now I know, I know that the black guys burn you. I know, but, but you know, when you're dope sick, you get that junkie optimism. You're like, there's probably a one in 5,000 chance that this guy will burn me, but at least there's one yeah. chance, you know, and you're like willing to take that, that very small chance that he might actually have it. So I go up to him, you know, my nose is running, not face chunky. I'm sure he sees him all the time. He's wearing a parka. I was like, hey, you got any heroin? And he has me follow him into an abandoned house. The windows had been boarded off with plywood. There was graffiti on him. The guy had red glassy eyes, hopped up on PCP and or something, maybe smoking crack. I don't know. He looked like a fucking graphic novel character or something. It was insane. Yes. He's going to like whip out a sword or something, you know? And um, anyway, we get to this abandoned house. We go inside. There's a stairwell. He pulls out a gun. He's like, you a cop. I'm like, I'm not a cop. I, uh, and, you know, I'm probably saying this way cooler than I was. What really happened is I was crying and I was telling him that I wasn't a cop, that I was a college kid. And he asked me which college I went to. But I went to a writing internship and I had to try to explain that to this fucking dude that's like hopped up on PCP and he's like not trying to hear it. That's the best, though. You're like, no, no, no. I'm an intern, and I'm trying to learn how to write. It's cool, it's actually, man. It's actually a year between high school and college that I can put it on resumes. You know, like, I'm trying to, like, pitch it to him, basically. But what ends up happening is he has this gun pointed to me. I'm shaking. I'm shivering. I'm already dope sick. And funnily, you know, funny enough, your mind is so powerful. I don't even feel dope sick anymore. The adrenaline's just peeking out of that. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you're going to he's he's telling me he wants me to shoot it in front of him. Now, lifetime phobia of needles never shot anything. I was like, I don't even know how to shoot anything. But of course, I'm much more bitch babble than that. You know, you know, and I'm I'm begging him to leave me alone. He takes out a worn syringe out of his sock that units numbers CCs had been checkered off. This old grimy ass syringe, blood in the rig. This is an HIV rampant Worcester, Massachusetts. He cooks the dope on a little cooker, draws up a shot. I put my arm out and I look away. And he pressed that button down, pushed the plunger. 
and it destroyed my life right there. If there's one moment above all that destroyed me, it's the first time that I shot heroin. It's crazy. I would never, I, I would never do it another way after that. Well, you know, what, it, of course you can't do it. 20 another years, way. Right. You, know, you can't 20 years later. I, 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 I like snorted dope one time after I had shot it. And that's because I hadn't done it in a long time. Um, but the thing, and there's so much stuff here, like the mood, the cinematic quality to these stories is insane. Like I can't imagine like a worst kind of situation. And also you're sticking out your arm to be branded. Like it's an, it's like an inoculation into this lifestyle where the dude is like, I could give you AIDS right now. I can give you hep C right now. And I'm going to get you addicted to the needle right now. He did give me hep C. I didn't have AIDS. And when they told me, they're like, it came up positive. I was like, no way. I thought I had AIDS. And they're like, you came up positive for hep C. You're reactive. I was like, oh, who gives a fuck about that? And they looked at me horrified that, like, it would, that, you know, that you're that apathetic about it. But hepatitis C, you know, that's like, you're lucky to get hep C and not HIV, you know? So, Anyway, especially, um, especially in that situation, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, are you kidding me? Were you scared of having AIDS as soon as you walked out of the dude's house? No, I was too naive to even really realize that that was a thing, you know? Uh, but my girlfriend, I, I kept it from them. I didn't tell them that I shot up, but then after that I'd go to the ghettos and I'd buy you syringes because at the time they were illegal. You couldn't even get them at needle exchanges or pharmacies, at least in that little city. And so they would sell you syringes for $5 and with the bleach kit. So I'd be bleaching the syringes. Nobody taught me how to shoot up. So I didn't even realize you had to register in a vein. I would just stick the needle in anywhere. And I, like we're in a general like crook of my arm and be like, okay, this is what they do in movies. So I get these huge welt abscesses. And like eventually a junkie saw me and he's like, what are you doing? Like, hey, let me show you how to do it. And then, you know, I just became a, a really hardcore IV drug addict. That girl caught me shooting dope. And instead of being upset, she's like, I want to try it. I shot her up. An entire year of just horrible shit happened after that. Um, you know, abortion, homelessness, uh, in and out of jail at that point. Um, you know, it, at one point, I broke into my parents' closet and stole 80, over $80,000 in savings bonds, cashed them, bought a kilo of cocaine because that was my plan. Okay, I'm going to steal all these savings bonds. I got over 80 grand. I bought a kilo for $20,000. That's a thousand grams. My plan was that I was going to become a drug dealer and I was going to provide for this girl forever. And I didn't, I probably sold two or three grams out of that kilo and we just did the rest. And I would stay up for 9, 10, 11 days on cocaine. And the psychosis that you get on cocaine is much more violent than crystal meth. You know, and I've, I've been down that road as well. But, like, give you a quick example. You know, I'm just kind of doing cliff notes and bullet points of different stories and stuff throughout my life. But I'd been up maybe like a week, a little more than a week on cocaine, smoking it, shooting it. And I hallucinated, I was taking a bath in a Motel 6, and I hallucinated that all of my teeth spilled out of my mouth onto my chest. So I'm looking at all these little, you know, uh, what it, like, they look like little 
chunks of chewing gum or something, but they're bloody and just in this puddle of gore on my chest, I start screaming. I was like, call 911. Like, my teeth are missing. And my girlfriend was like, dude, you, you, your teeth are not missing. You are in the throes of cocaine psychosis. I insisted. Paramedics came. They're like, sir. Are you, any, are, are you on any mind-altering substances? I was like, no, sir. Because I was telling them that my teeth were missing. To that point, I still had this same hallucination that it stayed with me. You know, it was fucking crazy. I was full-blown hallucinating off it, off sleep deprivation. And, and Coke. Uh, and IV Coke. And IV Coke. And so, you know, that relationship essentially imploded. You know, she had told me that her dad had molested her. I flew. Uh, this is this is a good one. And then we'll move on from the early junkie. This is a great one. We we're on acid one time. And this is after I'd stolen the savings bonds. And she had told me that her father molested her. They weren't estranged. He was a very successful attorney. And I was on the influence of LSD. And on top of that, this was my first love. This is a woman, your first love, I don't care who you are, your first love is the most intense love, besides having a child, in my opinion, that you can possibly feel. It's like that that do or die love where it it, dry, it will drive somebody crazy. And it hurt me so much. I had so much fucking empathy for the fact that he had done this to her. She literally jumped on an airplane. Well, first I called him and told him that I was going to kill him. He's like, I'm a fucking huge defense attorney i will have the mafia take you out i was like okay i'm coming there to murder you told him that on the phone i go and i get a plane ticket i'm still tripping by the way coming down off acid you know all i take with me to the east coast from santa barbara i fly all the way to boston with a skateboard that's it and in my mind i'm gonna hit him with the skateboard i'm gonna kill him so i show up at his house take a taxi over there which is with the skateboard i ring the doorbell it's like six in the morning you know this is by this point, the acid's well worn off. But, you know, LSD lasts 14, 15 hours. It was like two hours into the trip when this whole thing had started. Somehow I found my way to Massachusetts at this point. I ring the doorbell. He opens the door. The guy's like 6'5". I'm 5'6". He towers over me. I cock the skateboard back like I'm going to hit him. He grabs the skateboard like it's a fucking baton or something. Like it's a toy that he's playing with. Grabs it with one hand. He ends up getting me with it. Breaks my, gets on top of me. He's telling me to leave him and his daughter alone and that he'll kill me. And I think he saw how terrified I was, you know? I think he could just see, I mean, he had broken my nose, so there's blood bubbling up. And I think he knew that I was scared that he was going to kill me because it felt like that, you know? And I'd been threatening that to him. I just got up and I walked away. Let me, let me just walk off. I made it to a, to an elementary school and I'm, you know, covered in blood. I'm waving at the teachers. All the kids are out on the field. They're like, Oh my God. They come up to me. They call the cops. Cops arrest me for home invasion. Right. This guy had called the cops and reported me and he's a big defense attorney. Who are they going to believe an acne face, little junkie kid or the defense attorney. They take me to jail. They ask me, they're like interviewing me. I'm like, look, the dude's a child molester, and if he presses charges, I'm going to put his ass on blast. I don't give a fuck. It's going to be public. We're going to go to trial. I'm going to put this everywhere. Say he's a pedophile. 
They called and talked to him. This is a small town jail. This isn't like it's like a holding facility in like some small ass town in in uh, in Massachusetts. And he agreed not to press charges, you know, because the district attorney has they have to give it to the district attorney to file. That's what keeps you in jail. If they would escort me and put me on an airplane. So I said, yes, of course, I'll do that. They took me to the airport. As soon as I got there, I was like, all right, guys, wave to the cops. Took a cab back to his house trying to kill him. He wasn't there, but I broke in and I stole a family photo of him, went to a FedEx and made flyers that said local pedophile in your area. Put his address, his phone number. I put I made hundreds, hundreds of flyers, bought a staple gun. This is a little ass town, man. But like everybody knows everybody. And I just went and I stapled the shit everywhere. Trees, telephone poles. And then I went home feeling like I had gotten adequate revenge. Well, so that was, were you that sick? Was, were you on, were you dependent on heroin when you went out there? Were you, de- did you get sick? Did you need to cop? Was that a thing or was that not a thing? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was in no, well, no, 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 no. I was, I was off heroin at that moment. That was in this weird, um, kind of limbo where we'd been strung out on the east coast now we're out on the west coast we're just doing coke no i was strung out i was just doing coke i didn't have a heroin habit at that moment you know it was and that was just because i couldn't get it in california i was 18 i couldn't get black tar i didn't know people that did it like the only drugs we could get were like cocaine in santa barbara it's not like la where you can just go to like the ghetto and score and you don't have to know anybody in santa barbara you have to know somebody to get it so it took a while to like form those connections again and like get back into that scene. Um, but so that all happened. Right. And all sorts of horrible shit. She left me after a year. I hit an absolute bottom. I end up going, I stabbed a skinhead, you know, um, it's like just the opening of my book. It's a hundred percent true story. Hold, except on, they weren't getting- hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That was what I was going to start the whole thing with. Was the like I, I've been telling people about you coming on the show, right? And when they ask me about you, I tell them the opening of your book, you know. And in the opening of your book, it starts out with the the Ryan character, this guitar player named Damien, who's at the needle exchange, and he runs into this hot pregnant stripper, and they're both dope sick. And and just let me do this because this is fun for me. And they dope. break. They they fun for me. To- okay. They 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 need to get dope. And the, the stripper only has Italian money, so they go to the fucking skinhead's house, and it turns out the skinhead is fucking his little skinhead friend, who's also a dude, and they give him the Italian money, and they're pissed that they only have the Italian money, so they kick Ryan and the fu- or Damien and the stripper out, but the stripper steals an ounce of heroin and puts it in her bra. An ounce of heroin? How is she going to get an ounce of heroin under the nose of the skinhead into her bra. First of all, that's my first question. Second question, and this is the Wasting Talent. It is the most bombastic fucking dopey book I've ever read. Wall to fucking wall bombastic dopey. First of all, so let me just finish what I'm saying. All right, you leave, you, 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 you leave the fucking house, right? You leave the house with the, the pregnant stripper, Gina, her name is, the character, and she says, let's get high. And Damien says, we don't have any needles. So you break back into the house to steal the needles from the skinheads. And when you stab him, and I quote, it felt like stabbing a pumpkin. Now, so I have lots of questions. 
the first question is, how does she get the fucking ounce into her bra without them noticing? So in real life, it, that was me. But dude, so that's a dating. good reenactment of, your, of the right. beginning of the story, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, it was Korean currency. And in real life... Oh, Korean. Skin, okay, I'm sorry. In real life, the skinheads weren't gay. Uh, that was just kind of like an inside joke when I was fictionalizing it. I thought it'd be funny to make them like, you know, butt-fucking. But I ended up making them just kissing in the book. But in... I had originally written where they're like, where like he, they're straight up, you know, having sex while he sneaks back in. She stole two grams of heroin, not an ounce in uh, in real life. Uh, when I fictionalized it in the beginning, I felt more reserved about putting my true story out there. So I would put discrepancies on purpose like that. Say the book's about 80 percent true. I don't know how to play the guitar. So that is an entire invented uh, you know, subplot, but in real life, it was two grams okay. in real life. It was Korean currency, which it was in the book as well. Uh, in real life, I stab Ian. That's what, what happens in the book as well. I believe, right? Yes. That's what happens in the book. Uh, and did it actually feel like stabbing a pumpkin or did it feel yeah. like something else? Yeah. Okay. The pumpkin was true. Did you see the uh, the footage of the documentary, me telling the story, bro, like a week after it happened? There's footage of me telling that story when I'm like 20. At the end, 19. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's footage. That happened like a week before that was filmed. Like that was like fresh in my mind like that, you know? That's what I looked like back then, this little weaselly, greasy-faced, junkie kid. Yeah, but that's what happened. Yes, it really felt like stabbing a pumpkin and it stopped thud at the bone, you know, it was right above his knee and I hit an artery and that what was, was really crazy. First of all, it was reactionary. You know, the guy went to stab me. They'd already broken my nose. I've gotten this nose. I don't know if you can tell it's like all crooked. I've gotten this nose broken four different times in my life. Um, I know you can see me in the, in the zoom call right now, but, um, your nose still looks straighter than my horribly crooked <laughs> nose though. I mean, that shit's gotten broken a lot of times. Mine has too. But I think yours got broke straight. So anyway, continue, please. I just stabbed me. The knife fell. I picked it up and I stabbed him. It was a reactionary thing. I don't think that I'm like the aggressor in that situation. Uh, and I hit an artery. So it started squirting. It was like a misty arterial spray. It looked like a horror film. Like you watch a horror movie and you're like, that's fake. You chop off somebody's head and like blood's like squirting out of it you know, propulsively, it doesn't look real, or at least that's what you think. I'm telling you, I stabbed this guy in person and it looked just like that. It fountained in, it, it was like a fountain of blood that came out of his, the, the right above his knee. Um, and then, yeah, we, and the girl, the pregnant stripper girl, um, I still know to this day, she's, I'm friends with her on Facebook. She thinks it's really funny that I, that I named her Gina and put her in a book like that. She really, she thought it was funny. She read it before it was published and she didn't even know that she was in it. Oh, but, but so the best said, part was the best part was that after you stole the needles, I want to know why you had to go back in for the needles. That seemed like a very risky maneuver. Once you get the dope to go back. How to else the needles. were we going to get back then? You could buy them at pharmacies. The only place you could get them was at exchanges. So or downtown we LA or something. Right, right, right. I, I didn't sneak back in to get the needles. We went to be able to shoot it. That's the only way we did it. That's a testament to how fucking deep into addiction you are, where that's your logic. 
I'm willing to die. You know, I'm willing to risk my life to two crazy ass skinheads. So, that, so I can ingest which, it the way I want. So, so I, I can, can do it. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's great. And then the best part is that afterwards you take Gina to the bathroom at the gas station and fuck her in the bathroom. That I and do. shoot her in the neck. That's the best. Real life. Real life. That really happened. She'll, she'll say it. All right. Let's get her, well, let's get her on Facebook Live right now. I want, I, I want to do a press I, conference. I would love to have her as a guest. I've been trying to for a long time. And, uh, you know, she, she's a mom now. And she's kind of like, you know, I mean, she's... A lot of, you know, contrary to popular belief, but a lot of pregnant women that suck dick for drugs probably don't want to talk about it once the baby's born. It makes it's makes for bad um, parenting, you know, yes, parenting. It's risky. It's risky because they want to re- everybody wants to reinvent themselves and a mother never wants to put themselves on blast like that. I totally and that's the book. Remember, and the mother of the year award goes to Gina. You know, because it's like, I will do anything to save my baby. I'll suck his dick. And it's like, you know, and that's just kind of ironic how it's self-serving like that. Um, but anyway, after all that, I hit a rock bottom, right? Uh, I stabbed him. People are looking for me, trying to kill me. Had to get out of there. I moved to Florida. I call and I go to rehab. First time voluntarily. All the Mike Virgin stuff happens. I end up getting, I catch a case out there, uh, possession with intent to sell heroin. I do time out in Florida. I, uh, have to come back to California. I have a warrant. I do like another four or five months here, just County jail, boring stuff. I go in and out of jail, in and out of rehab. Um, you know, that's where I accumulated all of the rehabs. You know, I probably went to you know, 18 of them at that point. I've been to 25 of them now, but I went to 18 in and out. My parents are spending my college education money on rehab. Uh, they don't know what to do. Nothing's working. And finally I come back to Santa Barbara and I become a drug dealer, but I become a drug dealer on a big level. I'm selling kilos of drugs, not just like grams, not ounces. I'm selling bricks of drugs. How does that happen? It's, it's it's a fantastic fucking story if we have let's see fuck it i'll tell you i'll say exactly what happened so after getting kicked out of all of these rehabs right um my parents were like okay you can come home with the caveat that you don't do heroin well of course i get right back on heroin and i end up my dad gets me tickets to go see roger waters from pink floyd so i, I have tickets to a roger waters show I am a loser at this point in my life. I have nothing, right? I, I have no car. I live with my parents. I have nothing going for me. I look like the before picture for proactive. I'm, I'm shooting a grandma day. I have no hustle. I'm just like a leech. I'm parasitical. My best friend at the time, I'm like, my dad got his Roger Waters tickets. He's so stoked. Like, it's the best thing that's ever happened to us, right? Like, we feel like we won some sort of award, you know? We're like we're so gleeful over these fucking tickets. I end up meeting my girlfriend, Jenny. This girl I was with for a few years. She was five years older than me. She was my parents, uh, neighbor's granddaughter. And as soon as I meet her, the Pink Floyd show is coming up in like two weeks. I'm like, I got tickets to go see Roger Waters. She's like, I want to go. I was like, 
all right, well, fuck my best friend. You're coming with me. So I call him and I'm like, Hey man, he's like, he's like, dude, you know, I got pink Floyd embroidered turtlenecks or whatever. Like he's like really excited to go to this ship. Uh And I'm like, this is the thing. I met a girl and I'm going to take her instead of you. And he's like, what? He's like, that's some punk ass shit, man. And I'm like, so we stopped talking. Like, this is my best friend. I was like, well, I'm a piece of shit. I got to go. And so she didn't know that I was a heroin addict. She figures it out because she's five years older than me. She grew up there. And I'm hanging out with all these old heroin addicts. She's like, wait, why are you hanging out with all these old dudes I went to high school with? Oh, they're all junkies. Wait, 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 wait. Are you a junkie? So she starts taking me to the skate park to try to, like, give me structure, right, to try to give me something to do. Recreational time for you. I, yeah, so I end up seeing – she's like, okay, if I take you to the skate park, you're not going to get dope. I would call my de- my connection, and I'd be like, all right, man, be at the skate park at 9.30 a.m., you know? And so it didn't work. I'm at the skate park one day, and I see a kid with a pink Floyd shirt on. I'm like, hey, are you going to the show? He's like, yeah. He's like, hey, man. This kid's like 16. I'm like 21 now. He's like, can you get acid? And I'm like, Why? He's like, well, I have 11 extra tickets to the show, and I'll give them for acid because we need acid to see Pink Floyd correctly. And I'm like, I, I respect it, and I understand. I'm going to – yes, I got you. Now, I thought I could get it. But see, the problem is that all my connections are like Southside or fucking essay guys. So I'd call them. I'd be like, hey, can you get acid? And they'd laugh at me. You know, It's like junior high stuff to them. Uh I really thought I could get it, but all my connections sold heroin and meth. You know, they weren't, they were like little gangbanger guys. So I couldn't get it. And I was, I was like, fuck, because my whole plan was I'd get the acid. I'd save the day with my best friend, be able to take him and my girlfriend. Somebody ends up introducing me to this guy named Damon. And Damon was the biggest drug dealer I'd ever met at that point. And somebody says, I got a guy that has acid. Here's his phone number. Just call him. I'm like, just call him. Are you, you know, like I called him. I was like, so-and-so gave me your phone number. Come over, man. I was like, all right, cool. So I go over to his house. I swear to God, this is not made up. He opens the door and he's in these little short, like booty shorts. He's heterosexual. He's lathered up in tanning oil and he's got women. He's like in this house by the college and he's got women that are running around in bikinis and everybody's just snorting coke everywhere i felt like i was in boogie nights i was like what the fuck is this and he's lathered up right and i was like hey i need i need acid he's like yeah come with me brings me into his room he opens this trunk it's like a trunk you take on a on a train dude he opens it it's the most drugs i've ever seen he's got Huge Ziploc bags full of powder. He's got sheets of blotter acid. He's got pounds of mushrooms. He's got thousands of ecstasy pills. He's got everything, man. And I'm like, I'm like, it, uh, this is how much of a junkie I am. I don't even bring fucking money with me to his house. Somehow in my delete, there I go with junkie optimism. I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to get acid out of him without any money. I'm just going to no sample. It's like no you know, money like, down. It's the ultimate heist. No money down. Give me the acid. So I, I make a comment and I go, wow, you're a, you're a drug connoisseur, huh? Every drug known to man is like, yeah, except DMT. 
I was like, really? I was like, I got two ounces of that at my house right now. I'd never, I didn't even know what DMT was at the time. And he's like, his eyes light up. He's like, I'll take all of it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to part with all of it. You know, I'm trying to like maintain the lie, you know? And I was like, I'll, I'll part with an ounce. What will you, what will you give me for an ounce? He's like, I'll give you $3,000 worth of anything here for an ounce. I'll be right back. You know, I get in my car. So I, at that point, my parents had given me this little 85 Volvo, you know, that's like in the, on, under the condition. If I like at least present myself, like I have some stability to let me like drive this car. And now I have this older girlfriend who's kind of like, yeah, I'm taking him to the skate park. He's off drugs. I wasn't off drugs. So now I have this Volvo. I end up driving up to uh, my parents' house. And I Google DMT and I don't even know what it looked like. And I see what I've come to know it as. And it looks like this reddish dirt, like fucking gravel from Mars or something. Right. And I'm like, fuck, nothing like this at my house. But then I see on Google images that there's another kind of DMT that's white. And I'm like, they look like white crystals. And I was like, water softener crystals my parents have water softener the softener pellets you know these big bags of these salt pellets that you can get for your water softener i and i had a digital scale i weigh out an ounce of it i put it in a ziploc bag i put duct tape around it it looks like drugs for sure it looks all crystallized i go back to his place it gives me a bunch of blotter acid it gives me a bunch of ecstasy mushrooms cocaine but the thing that he gives me the most of was Molly, powder MDMA and powder MDA. So SAS, Molly. I didn't know what that was. This was in 2006. It really hadn't entered popular culture yet. It had been around for a long time. Pressed pills were kind of the rage at that point. But it wasn't like now where you go turn on the radio and it's in commercial fucking rap songs and everybody's talking about Molly, Molly, Molly. Nobody had heard of it back then, at least in the crowds that I was running. Right. With. It was like fish tour, so, dead tour, rave shit, whatever. Yeah. So I end up calling this guy, this kid with the Pink Floyd tickets. I was like, I got. Ah, hold up, I got hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You, you trade this drug dealer, this Boogie Nights kind of fucking crazy drug dealer, a fake ounce of DMT for every real drug in the world. This is like the craziest drug story, I think, in, in the history of stories I've ever heard. So continue. Three, and what do you, you... You leave there with everything you've ever wanted, basically. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember, said, do you remember I, that I, feeling? Well, well, I remember the feeling because he gave me a line of Molly. Uh, and I don't know why, because it's never happened to me since. I swear to God, man. I stored it. I was rolling instantly and I've never had that instantaneous reaction to it since, but it was like the first time I'd ever rolled. And I remember being like, I need to beat off right now. And I was like, I got to go, man. And I also asked him, I was like, Hey, he, I was like, do you want to try it? Because I'm a great bluffer when I play poker. I was like, do you want to try the DMT? And he goes, Oh no, man. Nah, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is spiritual. This is the spirit molecule molecule. I'm, I'm saving this for a special time. So I end up leaving and I'm rolling. So you asked me how I felt. I was horny is how I felt. And I remember that I, that's all I really remember is being really horny. 
and going home and locking myself in my room until my girlfriend got off work. And then she thought I was a straight creep, you know, but anyway, I call the guy, the kid, the Pink Floyd tickets. I tell him that I have all of these drugs. He goes, cool. I got you as many tickets as you want. So I call my best friend and I say, look, he's like, fuck you, punk. I'm like, listen, hold on. <laughs> Let's, you know, reserve the name calling for a different time. Not only did I get you an upgraded ticket, but now I have a ticket for your girlfriend too. What about that? And I've acid, you know, and he's like, what? It's like, and I've acid and ecstasy. And he's like, he was stoked. So we end up going down to this Pink Floyd show. We, we candy flip, you know, we take acid and, um, and the Molly together. Insane psychedelic night. Like I've seen Roger Waters multiple times since always have crazy ass times like that. The kids that I take down there. Oh, I had a chaperone them down there as well. That was part of it. That was like one of the contingencies, you know, of like, of them going down there and they start having bad trips. Oh my God, I'm adopted, you know, shit like that. And after all of that, make a long story short, the kids like, like we're going back to Santa Barbara the next day. We all fried, stayed at a hotel down there. He goes, what are you going to do with the rest of the drugs, man? And I'm like, I don't know. I couldn't get rid of them. I didn't know. I only need dope fiends. Right. So I was like, here, Sell him and give me what you can for him. He's like, okay. He calls me the next day and gives me five fucking grand cash. So what I do is I was like, are you serious? Like he just instantly got rid of it because all of these drugs were insanely high quality. I didn't realize that this guy, Damon, was connected to like the dudes that are manufacturing it, like in Toronto, like top dog guys, right? And so I call this guy, Damon, and I go, hey, look, bro, you done the DMT yet? <sighs> My buddy gave me a bunk batch. I'm going to have to come and cash you out. And he's like, damn, really? That's so solid of you. You're such a good guy, blah, blah, blah. So I go, I give him $3,000 cash. I was like, let me buy a couple grand worth of Molly. Boom. That's how it starts. And this kid was essentially my runner. I start hanging out with him, debaucherous parties going to raves, insane group sex, weird, crazy ecstasy shit. And like going to foam parties where it's just like naked women, like foam everywhere. And just, it was out of control. I'm always seeing this guy deposit money at Wells Fargo, five grand. So always tripping. Fuck, I got to go do this deposit. He's doing it like every day to Wells Fargo. So I knew that there was a bigger guy. And I wanted to get to him. I just didn't know who he was. Go to a Halloween party with these Coke dealers that I was hanging out with at the time. So once I became a drug dealer, I was like low level. I was like making like a couple grand a week. But I was hanging out with other low level drug dealers. And then some of them were like a little bigger than me, whatever. I go to this Halloween party. It's exclusive. It's a pimp and hoe party. Girls are dressed up like hoes. Guys dressed up like pimps. Nudity everywhere. People getting blowjobs and corners and it was insanity. Right. And I took acid that night. I was doing a lot of that at that point. So now I'm like in this like new psychedelic phase with like all these people were like going to shows all the time. These two guys show up. We don't know who they are. Both of them are just random. Who, who are these guys? How are they in this exclusive party? 
start talking to them. At one point, we're looking at where's Waldo books while we're tripping on acid together, looking for Waldo. And I was like, I have PCP in my car. Do you guys want some? They're like, yeah. We all go looking for my car. I can't find it because there's 30,000 people in Isla Vista, this town for, for Halloween. This is on Halloween. And these guys are like, come back to my house with us. So they end up taking me and my girlfriend, Jenny, to their house. It is a fucking mansion. There's hardly any furniture in this house. But what they do have is a shitload of high-end glass pipes. Glass pipes like I'd never seen before. Shit that would cost like five to $10,000. Like the most ornate, intricate, the size of a fucking television. But usable, functional glass art. You know, these are made by like the top glass blowers. They had tons of them. They're watching heart. They're watching a graffiti video. It's like interspliced hardcore lesbian porn. It was very odd. And it had this smell that I've become very familiar with. It was the scent of large quantities of marijuana, not smoked marijuana, but there was weight there. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that night, I'm tripping and everything. I'm hanging out with these people. I have no idea why this dude brings me into his room. Thought he was trying to like proposition me. I was getting very like scared. He's like, yeah, come into my room. I looked at my girlfriend. She's like, do it. I was like, huh? Like, you know, I was tripping. I didn't really know what was going on. Go into there and he opens a trash bag. Completely full to the brim with powder, white powder. I thought it was cocaine. It had to be like millions of dollars worth of cocaine. He's like, do you know what this is? I said, yes. He said, I want you to work for me. He recruited me. Because I was selling so much Molly through Damon. This was Damon's boss. So they knew who I was for like two, three months. It was no accident that they were at that party. They were there to recruit me because they wanted to replace him because he had gotten too partied out. Right. You know, just he was going to jail all the time for like stupid drunk shit. And and that's how it happened. Were Um, you were you strung out on dope at the time? By that point, I am strung out like a fucking lab rat, and they didn't know that. You know, and they they would tell me stuff like, don't ever sell heroin, don't sell coke, don't sell meth. That's on the DEA's radar. The club drugs, the molly, the acid, this stuff is not on the DEA's radar. We're never going to get caught. And you know what? I started selling heroin to go with my habit. At that point, I also became an associate producer for Spike TV. Long story, but I started doing legitimate stuff too. And part of the reason, because I was using the money that I was making from selling drugs to make pilots, to run a media company where I was brokering media to Spike, I became an associate producer because I was using money to create content. This was before YouTube was even a thing. And I was making good money, man. I was making like over... $3,000 a week doing this, but I was also selling drugs. My heroin habit grew exponentially. I started selling heroin just to keep up with my habit. I got on methadone and I got set up by, I got set up by my connection. My dealer told on me that this woman that I was getting heroin from, I was getting a couple pounds a week, nothing crazy, but I was selling kilos of Molly. That was my big thing. I was selling thousands of grams of mdma did you have did you have like a network of kids like the kids that took you to pink floyd were they moving all the molly for you like was it like that one of like 
20 people that was like basically a runner for me runner not in the traditional like paisa in a fucking honda sense you know that you're used to in like the drug world runner it like they were wholesale dealers type shit you know i'd sell a kilo they'd sell ounces at that point an ounce of mdma was going for 1600 and i was getting uh kilos for 15,000 so right. think about the markup on it it was significant you know i was making tens of thousands of dollars almost daily i'm terrible i'm terrible at the math uh what did the pounds of heroin look like like how did they give you the pounds of dope was it just bricks of tar no it was in balloons it was an individual it was in each individual unit and i know this sounds fucked up but i was i saw that there was an oxycontin epidemic raging in santa barbara at that time this is back when people were paying 50 cents a milligram sometimes a dollar a milligram in alaska they're paying two dollars a milligram these kids are paying fucking 40 dollars for an 80 milligram oxycontin right so i'm like these little multicolored balloons that I'd get in LA, if I get them in bulk, if I get a pound at a time, I get them for a dollar, a balloon. I started selling those balloons to drug dealers for $25 a balloon. So for each one I sold, I made 24 bucks and I would sell thousands of them at a time. And then in turn, they would sell those balloons to, to people that were already used to buying Oxycontin. So basically I looked at the market and I was like, okay, all of these people are getting ripped off so bad. They're already used to buying individualized units. It's not, it's the same thing if it's just a balloon. I'm not saying that's right. Believe me, like karmically, I feel fucking horrible that I helped perpetuate this epidemic at all. And I don't think it's cool that I did that, but I was also very sick with addiction at the time. And I would never have, I was not doing it to make money. I was doing it because I was sick, you know, you're doing it to keep up with your habit. But what happened with the boss? Did the boss find out that you were selling dope? Is that why he gave you up? No, 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 no. The person that gave me up was, um, a girl that like, you know, I, would started buying heroin down in LA and my connection had gone to prison. He calls me from a cell phone in prison. And he's like, hey, I'm in prison and I have a cell phone. I was like, what the fuck? You know, I didn't know how that stuff worked at that time. I hadn't been to prison yet. And um, uh, he's like, yeah, my wife wants to take up the uh, the business, right? So I started dealing with this lady. And she was this overweight Hispanic lady. She lived in East L.A. She had a transgender son that collected Disney socks. I can't make shit like this up. And she was selling me dope and she had three paisa runners that worked for her they'd come and they deliver a pound on monday and on friday what happened is the dea busted her with a kilo of heroin because she was throwing balloons full of it over a state prison fence so that this dude my connection could get tennis balls full of heroin in prison and they caught him they caught her they followed her home. They raided her house. She got caught with a kilo of heroin. She told on me and 50 or 60 other people. And what happened is the feds got involved and it all got linked to a cartel called the Mendoza clan. So the feds looked at me as a cartel member and they put me on this huge, huge 109 person indictment called the Mendoza clan, the LA times wrote about it and I got busted because she got busted and the feds. It's kind of, 
you know, popular culture will make you think that you get busted, you give up your dealer. It's the complete opposite in the feds because they want the dealer to give up who they're giving it to because even low-end convictions, they got five years out of me. I got a five-year sentence in, in federal prison, but that conviction helps seal the deal for the dude at the top of the indictment to get a life sentence. All the little indictments, every conviction they get bolsters their case at the top. So they want the dealers to tell on whoever they're giving the dope to. I didn't tell on where I was giving it to, so it stopped with me. The worst thing is that the first dude was right, that if you sell heroin, you're going to get picked up, and you get picked up. Did they get back to him? Did they get back to the garbage bag of uh, Molly guy? No, none of the, none of the people, uh, none of the Molly people ever got busted. Um, probably because I, you know, I stayed solid on my case. I didn't cooperate. They were trying to get me to flip. They're like, "You're gonna do years in prison," and I was like, "You know, I, I, I held my mud, and I thought that's what everybody did." Come to find out that I'm like in the minority there. Most people are, are snitches, you know, and um, yeah. So, you know, and I got sentenced to five years. And the worst part about it is my girlfriend got arrested with me and they let us go. And then when the indictment actually went down, I got a call that I was facing 10 years. So I retained this guy, Bob Sangers, one of Michael Jackson's attorneys. I said, hey, the DEA called, said I need to turn myself in. He's like, OK, let's use it as an opportunity to barter with them. What do you want? And I was like, I want them not to indict my girl, you know, like, I don't think two of us should have to go to jail. I'll go take it. I'll take it on the chin for both of us. He's like, okay. And so we made a deal with the FBI and DEA where if I surrendered to the U S marshals, they wouldn't indict her about three weeks into it. And I was on 180 milligrams of methadone for two years. I had to kick that cold Turkey, which took literally six months. And you know, terrible, that's, terrible. It was not. Hold up. Um, was your girl, was your girl using anything with you? Like, was she like, what yeah. was her involvement? She was on dope too. All right. She was the first two years that we were together. She was completely not, she was sober. Uh, she never had done heroin. And what happened is she got like a benign tumor in her neck that was like super painful. She was in a lot of pain one night and she's like, I want you to shoot me up. Um, She's like, it seems like you love heroin more than me anyway, and I'm in severe pain. Please shoot me up. She was begging me to. So I did. I wish I never did that because she turned into a really bad heroin act as well. And so then both and she was like kind of like the anchor, man. You know, like I was always so out of control. She was like keeping me in line all the time. And what ended up happening is I went and I turned myself in, you know, which was really hard to get the courage to do. You know, to go to the U.S. Marshals and not know if I was going to come out for 10 years, you know, but I just decided to do it because I wanted to save her. And when I went um, when I went and turned myself in a few weeks later, while I'm kicking methadone, I call her and she's crying and she's like, the state indicted me. Mm. The feds tricked us. They didn't prosecute her, but they handed the case to the state and they said, hey, if you want to fucking charge her by all means do it. So they tricked me into turning myself in and we both got charged with it. Just me federally, her on the state. She fucking died like a month later from an overdose alone. Mm -hmm. 
scared as a fugitive, you know, because without me, she was just, she was petrified. She didn't want to go to jail. And so she just ran away and she went to Vegas and was like living off all our money out there. And her brother, you know, opened the door to the bathroom and she had a needle in her arm. And that was, you know, that was like in the beginning of my term and they were telling me I was about to do 10 years in federal prison and I was kicking 180 milligrams of methadone and I was kicking an 11 gram a day habit. People go, that's not possible. It is when you have fucking pounds of heroin and you're on methadone. It is, you know, uh, I'm doing gram shots with fucking steroid syringes because that's how strung out I was. And I had to kick that cold Turkey and then she dies, you know, like in the middle of that, it's like I, the trauma I of that, I can't even imagine. I, I can't even imagine. The level of rock bottom that that was at that point, it was like, like, dude, and that wasn't my bottom, man. You know, that was not it. That's not where I bottomed out. Like, that was every fucking day. I was screaming in agony because it felt like my bones were getting ripped out of the seams. 180 milligrams of methadone is like getting tortured, dude. Like it, it heroin, heroin withdrawal is, I'm not even exaggerating. Methadone's a thousand times. No, I was on, I was on, I was on 150 milligrams. I know what it feels like. You're off. Oh oh yeah. I'm totally off. You kick. Oh dude, you and I are like, part of a very small batch of people that ever even got off those fucking liquid handcuffs, bro. They are insane. No, I know. And it was, I know how bad is that kick, man? I was lucky. I didn't go to jail and kick it all at once. I kicked it over the course of a year, like you going like for- four milligrams at a time, like still bad. Right? Oh, it was terrible. And, and I, I still felt like shit for, for like six months later. I, I hear yeah. a click in my knee to this day that I attribute to those days. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, I came off it like a leaf floating down from a tree and it was still horrible. So I can't even imagine what your deal was. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, and you were, you were in a, what was, what was, how many people did you share a cell with? What was kicking like in one, jail? Just one. I was in maximum security federal detention. It's called MDCLA. That's another thing, man. I was in print, like in the feds, they don't have county jails. It's not like on you know, the state where like you get arrested and you go to some like junior college version of prison in federal prison. When you get arrested, you're instantly plunged into a fucking federal facility, two man cell. People have shanks, people, there's riots that pop off. People get murdered here. It's not like jail. You know, people are get you're in the federal system. People are like, it's stockbrokers. When people say that, they have no idea what they're talking about. You're talking about heads of cartels. You're talking about entire street gangs like MS-13 getting indicted, sweeping indictments. All of the Mongols had just gotten indicted. It was all rough people, and I was petrified. Like, I'm not a tough guy. Like, you know, I, I'm, I was an addict. I can, no, no. What I, I want to know is this, though, like because you're in the lion's den, you're a sheep in the lion's den. But forget being a sheep. You're kicking methadone and heroin and sick. Like, do they not fuck with you when you're sick, or do they know you're vulnerable and fuck with you worse, or are you protected immediately? 
like, so unfortunately, a lot of guys in prison are not very smart, right? A lot of illiteracy uh, for no fault of their own. Just they didn't have even not even traditional education. They just had very unstable upbringings, you know, and they'll be like, they'll say, you know, um, so you tell them that you're kicking. These guys are all used to kicking heroin. They don't realize that methadone goes. So like after a week, they're like, all right, dog, you're not sick anymore. Get up, you know, work out with us. And you're like, dude, I'm sicker this week than I was last week. But they don't understand that. So, yeah, they were cool to me a week. And then running as a South side, because there was like no white guys there. Like pretty much I had to click up with with essays because I was on a cartel case. So they're just like they kind of like accepted me as like a Southsider. Right. And I like and I'm not. And once I got to like an actual federal pen, when I started getting to like the bigger prisons, I would run with the Peckerwoods, you know. But at that detention center in the beginning, there's like pretty much all black dudes and all essays and pisos. And like maybe like three or four white guys. And I'm like, all right, I have to run with the essays because I need to, you know, I can't be outnumbered to that degree. It's, it's like unsafe, you know? And, uh, so anyway, man, how do you get included to run with the essays? Like, why do they take you in? I think they took me in because I had money, you know? And they're just like, you know, they're like, like, yeah, dog, you can, you know, you can spread with us. Here, um, you pay $80 for this bowl and we'll put in like two or three dollars. Is that cool? And you're just like, yeah, whatever. You know, you just want these dudes to like fucking you. back up. You know, it didn't even matter to me. And I was so sick and just like dying. And like my attorney's like, you know, I want you to mentally prepare to do 10 years. You know, just get that in your mind. Ten, and I'm just like, you know, kicking girlfriends, dying like the worst. You know, the worst. Like, putting myself to sleep, but not sleeping, you know, electrified by withdrawal, staying up for a month at a fucking time, just like, dude, bottom of the barrel shit. And as time went on, I ended up getting five years, you know, my parents spent 80,000 on an attorney um, and they didn't have it like that. You know, they just loved me and didn't want me to do 10 years, you know. And I still had some money from being a drug dealer, but my girlfriend died and I lost all that money. No idea what happened to it, you know? How much money was it? When I left, I left with like a little over 100000 cash, but I had more than that. I had just gotten burned for seventy grand, like two weeks before that's a long story. But like my my resources were dwindling. You know, I had two big grow operations. I had a lot of different sources of income. Um, I was laundering money through high-end art. I was buying Warhol, Picasso lithographs, um, Roy Lichtenstein. And, you know, she, she ended up dying and I lost all that shit. You know, I put most of my money into art. I'd buy like an Andy Warhol soup can for like 18 grand it looks like a fucking poster so the whole concept behind that is if a cop comes and raids your place you have nothing not of value right they're off the wall they don't realize that that's 18 g's that's a lot better than having it in a safe right so when i left she took all the art 
and she died and you know so prison was horrible it was the most traumatic horrible shit that you could imagine they sent me to arguably the most violent prison in the country at the time it's called victorville and before i got there its reputation preceded it it was everybody called it victimville so i was like fuck all right well that's cool that's where i'm going all right i'll be fine you know i get there um got beat up first week i was there pretty bad was the withdrawal uh, done by then yeah I'd, I'd already been in for eight months now and you, you weren't know, using maybe, you weren't using in, you weren't using heroin in, in prison yeah now at this point i'm strung out I'm shooting heroin every single day at this point. So, in a gram of heroin, just for a point of reference, out here in LA, gram black tar is 80 bucks for a point, for a 1.0. In prison, you get a prison gram as a 0.7 of a gram. That's what a prison gram is called. It's a 0.7. $400 for a gram. And I was doing, at my worst, I was doing a gram a day. Were your parents, your parents were just putting money on the books like that? How did you get the money? My parents were wiring other people. I'd be like, uh, Hey dad, can you send 5,000 to Juan Lopez in El Paso, Texas? And he'd do it. Why would your dad do it? Cause he thought he was saving your life. Yeah. I mean, it got to a point where he's like, no, I'm done. Like I'm not sending you anymore. And he came to visit me in the shock collar of the prison traded visits with me. It was in like a visiting room and he went sat with my dad and I had to go sit with the shot caller's wife. And he told my dad, listen, they're going to kill him. If you don't pay this, it was my dad's birthday. I felt awful. He had to pay like, you know, over $3,000. He had a Western union to someone to save me. And this went on and on and on and on and on and on. And I've seen, I saw somebody get murdered. Um, saw this black guy get stabbed to death. Uh, I'd already seen like Mike Virgin shoot someone in the back. So I'd seen murder at that point. Um, but in prison, it's a little different because you're in like a confined setting. It's a microcosm. So it's scary because it's like a contained environment. Um, and you're plus, one of the players. You're one of the players in the contained environment. So you know that it could just as easily be you. It's like you're yeah, all the got, same person. in yeah. there. I had, I had a shank, you know, um, and you know, I stomp people out in there with boots on. I'm not proud of that, but you got to do what you got to do, you know? And it was just a, a really bad experience. I ultimately got sentenced to five years. And in, in federal prison, you do 87%. Say 85, but it's really 87%. Eventually, um, eventually I, I went out to Wisconsin to take a drug and alcohol class that would take a year off my sentence. You're in prison. I mean, it's not like you go to a rehab, but I got, I went out to, to Wisconsin and this is a good recovery part of my story. Right. Finally, and dude, we finally a little recovery in your story. Oh we've, God. We've covered just so the audience knows, this is the first time I went to prison. I've been three times. The last time was for pimping. Um, and I didn't do that. That's a long story, and it wasn't another. Um, it wasn't another pimp and hose party that went wrong. Oh, no, dude, dude, that was. You know, I don't know 
I don't know how, where, if we'll get to it or whatever, but yeah. Anyway, I get out to Wisconsin and I, I, I take this drug program. And the, the thing is, is it, it's nine months long. You go to classes for half the day, it's cognitive, emotive, dissonance, behavioral shit. And then once you're done with the nine months, take a year off and you go home. So instead of five years to do four, you know, this guy moves into my cell, looks like a pedophile, right? And I said, are you a pedophile? And he's like, oh, uh, he's all like weirded out. I'm like, God damn, that is a pedophile response to that, you know? And I was like, look, man, I'm gonna have to see your charges or you can't be here. I have pictures of my little cousins and shit like on the wall. I'm not trying to live with the fucking sex offender. In California, the more hardcore prisons I've been at, you can't even have like sex offenders get stabbed and shit. They're right. not even at the prison. Right. There's no protect. There's no protective custody in federal prison, by the way. It's all general population. So if you're a pedophile, they put you with non-pedophiles that will kill you. You know, so if For anybody's being a pedophile, being, yeah. They would consider being a pedophile. You will get killed. But anyway, uh, so this guy, I, I don't want to live with somebody like that. So I, I insisted that he give me my, uh, you know, show me his charges. The next day, they call me in to the office. I had four months left to go, and I went home. Four months in the drug class, whatever, they'd taken a year off. Four months till I went home. I said, Ryan, Mr. Leone, we're kicking you out of the drug program. We're taking your year. You're acting more like a convict than somebody that wants to rehabilitate. That was the only time after the methadone incident when I was kicking for six months that I cried. Because I had to call my dad and I called my mom and dad and I had to tell him I'm not coming home for fucking 16 months now. Hold up, though. You what know? did you do? Did you stomp out the pedophile? What, what did you do that made no. them... No, all I did was ask to see his charges. And then he went and told the cops that he, he feared for his life and he couldn't be there anymore because I was trying to, you know, I was trying to like make him show me if he was a pedophile or not, which he obviously was. And they ended up locking that guy up and shipping him to a new prison. So he just completely came and fucked my life over for no reason. So at that point, I started getting really into drugs out there you know before that i was trying to behave myself and end up doing drugs and this guy comes up to me one day i don't know this guy so now like i'm not getting my year off i'm just doing a bunch of drugs drinking i'm getting in like fist fights like i don't give a fuck you know i have like a beard now you know, I'm just like, that's I'm how you could tell. That's how you could tell you didn't give a fuck. Cause you grew, give a fuck. Grew, cause you grew the beard. You had the, I don't give you a know, fuck. Beard. Yeah. <laughs> I looked like I'd been like on some Island for like seven or eight years, just all like disheveled. And, um, this guy comes up to me. It's like, Hey man, now at the time I'm writing my book, my illustrious best-selling novel, wasting talent. I'm writing it at this point at that prison. And that's pretty much my fantasy, you know, that it's going to catapult me to this, to fame and fortune. Someday I'm going to, you know, be a, you know, everyone's going to love me and I'm going to be a celebrity writer and all this shit, you know, that would get me through, man. It's those dreams that get you through prison because it's just such a very, such a tough environment and you have to kind of cling on to something like that, 
to help get you through, you know, whether that be, uh, you know, a kid, you, you know, when you're, you're having a kid, you know, a wife waiting for you or a dream, you know, and that's what, what was waiting for me, this dream. You know, if I put the work in for the book, someday it's going to change my life. And it fucking has definitely. But that's what I'm doing. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, Hey, do you still do heroin? I said, and I didn't know this guy, but I knew people he was friends with. I was like, yeah. He's like, I was just doing a shot myself and I did too much. I'll just give you it for free. I was like, well, I got to say, in all of my time being a drug addict, I've never said no to free heroin. So I was like, all right, that sounds great. Go to his cell. I remember it very clearly. I shot up in my hand with a binky. You know what a binky is? Yes. It's like a make syringe in prison. Yes. So I shot up with this binky. And I remember going and laying on my bunk. I went back to my cell. I remember listening to the Beatles. And I was sitting there, and a cop comes in my cell. He goes, Leone, you got to go to the lieutenant's office for a drug test. Mm. The guy set me up, okay? I, and my logic is like, okay, I just shot it. Maybe it has to metabolized. Maybe I can pee, Quick. and it's not going to show up. Yeah. I pee. I'm all confident. I'm like making eye contact with the guy, like trying to like, you know, I'm like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. It's clean piss. And he's like, Hey man, he's looking at the test. He's like, put your hands behind your back. I'm like, huh? Fucking arrests me, you know, and puts me in solitary confinement. The Lieutenant comes up to me and goes, who gave you the dope? I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I didn't do any dope. He goes, okay, look, if you don't tell me who gave you the dope, and they already knew because the guy had told them me, right? If you don't tell me, we're going to leave you in here for 60 days. No, no, um, no books, no magazines, no newspapers, no music, nothing. An eight by 10 cell. And I was like, suck my dick. How's that? And boom, they really did that. And that's what I said to him. And, um, cause I was just mad, you know, at the time I had a girl that I was corresponding with a pen pal that I was becoming rom- romantically involved with. I actually ended up getting her pregnant right when I got out, whole different story. But, um, I go to solitary confinement for 60 days. Now my entire socialization comes from drugs. You know, I learned Every part of the social experience from addiction, if, if celebratory, medicatively, socially, everything, socially, rejection, loss, everything was surrounding my drug addiction. I didn't know how to process shit like a normal person, you know, for the first time in my adult life, I had to sit quite literally in my own shit. And the only thing I had was my fucking mind. And like the first two weeks, I was solid. You know, I was like, yeah, this isn't shit. You know, the cops fuck you. Ah, this isn't shit. I'm stronger. Mind over matter. You know, I'm saying to the cops. And then I start going a little crazy, you know, and I start talking to myself. And in the middle of it, they bring me into this room, cell, uh, cuffed up, and they say, 
And I didn't know what they were doing because to move anywhere in solitary confinement, to go to the shower, to go anywhere, to go to the outdoor recreation for an hour by yourself in a little cage, you have to be handcuffed. You can never not be handcuffed to make movement when you're in the hole. When you're in a disciplinary part of the prison, you always have to be handcuffed unless you're in your cell. So they cuffed me and they brought me into another room. There's like 15 cops surrounding me and they're all looking at me very like this like very strange, sullen expression on their face. And I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that something bad had happened. And I said, what's up? And they're like, your grandfather is dead. And we're giving you five minutes to talk to your family. Now, my grandfather was old. It wasn't like some sudden tragic thing. I talked to my mom. She's crying. I told her I loved her. They bring me back to the cell. And I think that that was the moment that did it. I had to process that right there without any drugs or anything. And it just completely broke me, you know, and cathartic experience. I had what they would say in the Alcoholics Anonymous world, a white light experience and a complete and total rock bottom spiritually mentally physically emotionally and i was just done i don't know how to explain it but that was it like i was just like i'm done and i stayed sober for three years now, from that point you know I, I think one thing that's really interesting here to me is like you know when i first asked you about memories and you talked about how memories got solidified retelling stories you know, and, and I've, I've listened to your story before we talked, and I know a little bit about you before we talked, and I know how much you attribute your life right now to your time in prison. Like, that's where you learn to retell stories, because it was entertainment. Not to mention you were writing Wasting Talent when you were there. How far into Wasting Talent were you when you had to go into the, the solitary, and, and how much did you finish sober? Like, what was that process of writing? So I actually got sober on my mom's birthday, um, June 13th, 2012. I started writing Wasting Talent December of 2009. Okay. So 10, 11, 12. And then I got out April 9th, 2013, my son's birthday, by the way, which is cool synchronicity. But um, – it took me three years and I didn't know how to write a book and I read a lot of books and I read books on how to write books. But the way that I learned how to do it is that I just rewrote the same book over and over and over again until I thought that it was good enough, you know? And by the time that I got to the version that you've read, I felt like I'd learned how to, how to write a book. It's incredible. And, uh, Another, you know. what was like in terms of like the work you did when you were using versus the work you did when you were clean, was it obvious? Like, like, did you read the words when you were high yes. and you were like, like what was, yeah. what was good and what was bad for that process? The first, the first 10 chapters of the book up until the overdose in San Francisco, if you remember that part was written when I was strung out, the last 11 chapters were written sober. And there's a noticeable difference between the two. There's a lucidity in the second half of the book that doesn't exist in the first half. It I mean, it gets more different. hyper. Right. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. But so, um, you know, I got out. 
and I was sober, man, for the first time, for the first time in my life. And so many fucking people had written me off, you know, I remember getting that first year sober. Cause I got out with nine months clean, <laughs> you know, I just did five years and I like, I was like, yeah, I got nine months, you know, and people are like, damn, you're doing heroin in there. I was like, yeah, pretty much the whole time, you know, for like four years. But I remember like getting that one year sober. I just remember like how emotional that day was and like how many people that had given up on me, like were back in my life. People that had written me off 15 years before, you know, people that I didn't even know were on my friends list that I missed, you know, but now they're back. People would message me and be like, dude, if you can get sober, I know that I can. How did you do it? I helped a lot of people get sober. That altruism that AA or most recovery models espouse certainly helped me at that point. And I came out in really good shape. I was super muscular. I was 126 pounds in my worst. I was 230 fat on methadone. I came out 180 muscle and I, I, I transformed and um, I moved down to L.A., I published Wasting Talent and it didn't do, it did whatever, you know, the beginning, it was just, I sold like a thousand copies, I think the first year and which is considered good, you know, for a book, but it didn't start picking up for a while. So I'm sober and I'm going to meetings and I'm on a paleolithic diet. I'm doing CrossFit. I have a, a condo in Encino. I have a nice BMW. I'm engaged. Was all Everything. the money, all the money was coming from the book? Yeah. Yeah. I was making good, good money in the beginning, man. You know, like there were months where, you know, I was making 3,800 bucks, shit like that. But for back then, um, the girl I was with, she had a lot of money. So it was just like extra money that came in. So it's, so we, you know, we'd always be going to concerts, traveling. She'd had a great life. And what happened is at the end of that, you know, and, and I'm doing, I'm doing reading events and all this shit. I'm starting to get kind of known in the writing world. It's kind of like tantamount to musicians that go to bars and play little gigs. I'm going to little bookstores and doing readings. There's like 10 people and, you know, but it starts getting bigger and bigger. I start headlining events. And what happens is at the end of all that, my friend gets the same guy that I burned for the Pink Floyd tickets, got acid. And he was like a couple years sober too. And he's like, hey, I went to farmer's market. I found some LSD. Someone sold me some. Do you want to do it? And I thought I could do it in recovery. You know, I was like, okay, I'm an artist. It's not going to be the same. It's as a psychedelic. It's not dope. It's not coke. It's, it's not it, crack. I got you. And and I took it, and I had a good trip. You know, I took three hits. Um, I tripped balls. Very hallucinatory. Not super euphoric or pleasant because I think there was too much guilt kind of weighing me down. So it took away from, like, the fun of it because – I'd been sober for so long and like now there's a chemical in my body. My body knew that, you know, on like a subconscious level, knew what I was doing. And a week later, 
I had a needle in my arm again because the next day I woke up and I just didn't feel sober anymore. It was done. And it, the protection it was, was done. I got you. That was it. I did that thing that happened, <clears throat> that rock bottom that I talked about, that cathartic shit that was like a light switch that turned me good. It went back into addiction. That was in 2015. And that's Relapse. that's like the, the number one lesson for everybody out there. You can get it and lose it in a second, right? It's like the switch goes down, but that doesn't mean it can't go back up. It's like it's pretty remarkable. Like that's important it, that people hear that. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the question I wanted to ask you, though, is like you're making meetings in L.A. Were you making meetings in jail? Like was the pro- were yes. you a part of the yes. program? Did you feel a part of oh. it? God, I'm glad you asked that because I just feel like a big asshole. When I decided to get sober in prison, I had this group of friends in there. All of these guys had been down like 15, 20 years. You know, they're all doing insane gargantuan sentences for drugs, all nonviolent drug offenders, sweetest guys ever. I'm an only child. And for the first time in my life, I had like brother figures, you know, like these guys really loved me. And it wasn't because, uh, you know, it's not because I'm friends with famous people or because I had dope in my pocket or because of the money. They liked me because of me, you know, and it was like the first time I had like real friends. And when I decided to get sober, these guys fully fucking embraced that, you know, and they're like, OK, like we're going to show you how to live like like a sober, normal person. I got really into lifting weights um, at the peak the best thing i did is i deadlifted 595 pounds which is a lot that was like my big like accomplishment on the weight pile but it's fucking heavy for weighing 180 pounds and they had meetings there but like two or three people showed up and it didn't matter it was more symbolic you know and like my friends really encouraged me to go and they'd be like hey man it's monday meeting like, how bad do you want it? Do you want to stay sober or not? I just would go to meetings. It'd be like me and like a couple lifers that were never going home. But this is what they did for this is they, they wanted to stay sober. So when I got home, I did do the meeting for I did do meetings for the first, you know, year or not even that long. I don't know, probably the first like six months. But what, what happened is I've always been, uh, you know, I've always been a sex addict, I'd say too. And unfortunately when I got out, I just started fucking, fucking any woman that would make eye contact with me. No, that's, I had, I had, I, it was actually really weird. Like the ones that I would hook up with before prison the the difference between like because I was a much higher quality person when I got out and it was just a whole different caliber of of women that I was around and um when I'd go to meetings that's all I really cared about you know being at meetings that's the only it would distract me so much and then people would be like okay we'll go to stag meetings I'd be like okay but then the fun was out of it and I wouldn't want to do it and then I just stopped going and then I met someone and then I just was over it right. And so you're saying you're saying that the draw of the meetings were the women at the meetings, like it became very yeah. exciting. The social, yeah. Element. No, I got you. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, in like my mind, I'm like, I just did five years, you know, and 
like, God damn, man, I have a lot of, I got to get it out of my system. And I did, you know, and like, whatever, I grew out of all that, you know, but, um, but at the time it was important to me to make up for lost years and it was too restrictive, you know, in being in recovery and being like that. And, you know, and, and I, I grew out of that. Like, I just, like I said, it, 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 wasn't fulfilling like I'm in a great relationship now and like I love my girl so much and we have a kid and we have another one on the way and like we have a real relationship and it's meaningful and you know that's a lot of growth for somebody like me who's always had these like relationships that were seething with toxicity um back to the relapse though within a week I lost everything you know I lost my condo girl that I was been with for a couple of years, we were engaged, left me, you know, and I didn't have anything, man. All I had was a car. So I started going in and out of rehabs. I'm homeless. I'm going to psych wards. I'm fucking selling drugs again on federal probation. You know what I mean? And like what ultimately ended up happening, ironically enough, I was living on my best friend's couch, the dude that, with the Pink Floyd tickets, which I get a Facebook message in that weird folder that's not from your friends list. It's like random people you don't know. It's a fan letter from a woman, blonde woman. And she's like, hey, I just wanted you to know I read Waste and Talent. It's my favorite book. I saw her picture and I was like, ooh, who's this? Started talking to her and she's like, Where do you live? I'm like, LA. And she's like, Okay, well, maybe when I'm in LA, we can have a drink. I was like, Yeah, it sounds good. And she's like, Or maybe we could take ecstasy together in a hotel room. I was like, That's even better. About a week after that, I sold the French rights to wasting talent for six grand. I never had money like that, man, at that point. Like, my royalties were dwindling. The book actually started being more successful but i got more fucked up on drugs so it kind of evened out and i like didn't really have money anymore you know and but i got all this money so i flew her out this fan and we had a wild ass took ghb stayed up for four or five days on cocaine i'm driving the one thing i had was a nice bmw at an x5 pretty new black on black black leather looked like i had money I fly her out. We're going to like the nicest restaurants. We're snorting LA Coke. You know what I mean? And like the end of that week, I bring her to this bar. Now at this point I became an alcoholic because I left a rehab with the girl. She sees the way I'm using and she's like, you're spending a hundred dollars a day. You could be spending $20 a day on taco vodka and getting way more annihilated. So she, she literally taught me how to be an alcoholic. Right. Now I'm a junkie and an alcoholic. It's lighting the wick on both ends. I'm physically dependent to alcohol. Getting, I get DTs if I don't drink. I'm drinking not that much, like a fifth a day at that point, but i am still been doing it long enough where I'm getting the shakes. I think this is like maybe seven, eight months of drinking every day like that. And we're at this bar. This guy sees us, and, or this woman, and she's like, oh, my God, you guys make such a good cute couple. My husband officiates weddings. You guys should get married. Boom. We got married the next day. It was a joke. I'd only known her a week, but we were really married. And like, I come out of this like cocaine GHB fucking fog and I'm married to a fan, you know? And I'm like, what? I didn't, I like just couldn't believe I'd done that. 
she ends up uh we we move back to la we have this whole, and she's got a five-year-old kid by the way the oh, whole no. time i'm strung out i'm drunk all the time i end up getting a non-conviction dui i get in a car accident see i couldn't stop drinking man and when i first met her kid she's like okay listen ryan problem is that you're drunk all the time i need you not to drink to meet my kid you're going to be a stepdad so i stopped drinking for the day and i didn't have one drink i've been drinking a fifth a day for about seven or eight months i wake up and the entire bed is going it's like it's fucking shaking and i'm like i had no idea that i was strung out on alcohol by the way i was shocked that that's what it was i i thought i was like oh that's like leaving las vegas shit i gotta be drinking gallons to be like that i didn't know dude a fifth a day if you drink it for long enough you'll get dts if you stop suddenly like that so um she gave me a couple heinekens and boom the shakes just subsided i'm like no fucking way so i realized i was strung out at the end there she left me towards the end and she's like you're just you're the worst alcoholic and drug addict i've ever met in my life you're just out of control we have a lot of this footage in the documentary so i was like i promise i'll quit and i stopped cold turkey again i woke up in the middle of the night and i had had a seizure and flopped like a fucking fish into the middle of the into the bedroom and i was like and she's like, she was a bummy. She's like, oh my God, you had a seizure. I was like, well, you made me stop drinking. This is your fault. I should have gone to detox or something. I told you. And there's no alcohol. So I ended up just drinking a bottle of cologne. You know, that's the only thing I had in the house. And it got me okay until the morning. She gets me a pint of Jack Daniels in the morning. It's her son's birthday. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get him a present. I'm really going to get heroin. I'm addicted to heroin and alcohol. It's like lighting the wicked both ends. Like I said, I go to get it. The connection, I drive 45 minutes to go get it. The connection's like, oh, actually, I'm not there. I'm going to visit my boyfriend in jail. So I don't get it, and I'm dope sick. I'm going back. I end up getting in a car accident. I'm not drunk, though. I blow up .06. They arrest me anyway. I'm like, what the fuck? This isn't even a DUI. What the fuck is wrong with you? It's like Bruce Springsteen. I And I get out the next day, or I get out later that day, and I'm like okay, that won't be a conviction. It was a 0.06, but I called my PO and I go, look, man, I got arrested yesterday or I got a D I was like, I got in a car accident they charged me with the DUI. It's not that big a deal. He's like, you're going back to prison. I was like, what if I beat it? He's like, doesn't matter. We have a lower standard of prosecution for the violations. So ultimately I end up going back for three months to prison I see somebody get murdered the second day I'm there. This, is, somebody this is probably the best thing that could have happened to that poor woman, right? You getting locked up at that point. But that poor woman was, uh, okay, I misrepresented her. She was <laughs> shooting heroin with me, okay? okay? She was a prostitute. Okay, yeah. And I didn't any okay. of this until, no, she was not some normie, innocent Normie bystander. mom with a with little kid. That's what I'm picturing. And it's like, you just need she, to get out of there. It, Straight up piece of shit. And she, she, dude, she pretty much, um, she pretty, she, I was going to get out of prison a, a couple weeks earlier and she, her mom called the prison and was like, he beats her. Don't let him out. I've ne- I put that on my child's life. I've never put hands on her. And when we would get in fights, I'd be, you know, I, I'm mean, 
yeah, I'm emotionally abusive, which I'm not saying is okay, but I'd be, I'd be like, shut up prostitute, go, go hooker yourself to a John fucking whore. And she would open the door, man. She would open the door to the apartment complex and be like, this is a huge complex in North Hollywood. She's abusing me. She's talking about verbally, bro. But the cops would come and God and fucking put cops on me. So now we're getting closer to the end of my story. Uh, well, I mean, closer to modern times at, at where the success comes in. Thank God, because I was getting so sick of this fucking life, you know, like this. Um, I, I will say this, though. Let me give you one good example of my marriage, because it's so important for listeners. I tried to commit suicide once in my life, and it was over this girl. And let me tell you about it. So. It was over, hold up. It was over the wife? Yeah. Okay. Yep. It was Christmas time. And she's cheating on me. I'm cheating on her. The most unhealthy marriage you could possibly imagine. And we know we're cheating on each other and it doesn't matter. Right. We don't even care. We don't even like each other. We're just stuck with each other type shit for no reason. I don't know. It's just, it was ridiculous, but I did care about her, you know, because I'm codependent, like all addicts, I cling on to the idea of love of what they can be when it's not actually what they are. Christmas time's coming up. And at this point I'm strung out like a dog, man, like bad, bad, bad. She got a brain aneurysm, smoking meth with me, mm. had to go to the hospital. Well, she's in the hospital. I blow her entire savings on crack and heroin. And so she has no money to buy her kid presents. And she's super upset about it. I don't blame her. She gets out of the hospital. She checks her account. She's like, are you fucking serious? She's like, you blew our entire savings on crack. She didn't know what it was, you know, on drugs. And I was like apologizing. I was like, I'll, I'll, you know, she, we actually, she had some presence, but I blew her savings regardless. And that's what she was like kind of blaming it on that I was taking away from her kids Christmas. Truth be told, she was a junkie and I don't believe that that's where that money would have gone, but it doesn't matter. We end up going to the pharmacy and she got prescribed Dilaudids. I'm dope sick at the time. And I'm like, please just give me a couple Dilaudids. And she's like, no, I'm not giving you any of my fucking pills. You just jacked me for my savings. Fuck you. Like, please, baby, I'm so sick. And I go into the pharmacy and she's like, I'm not giving you any of my fucking drugs. And everybody in the pharmacy looks at her. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. So I leave, go back to our apartment. I'm shooting, I'm like looking for cottons, anything. I'm trying to squeeze whatever I can out of a piece of cotton just so I can feel something. Nothing. She comes in, opens the door, hair's matted wet. And she's like, you're a piece of shit. And she just charges me, man, and, like, tackles me. She's holding me down and going, he's trying to kill me. But the thing is, is it's pouring rain out, so nobody in the complex can hear. I leave. I run away. I'm like, fuck this. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to be – I'm going to go to jail if I hang out with her any longer. I go up to Santa Barbara. My, my, best, my best friend, again, Pink Floyd ticket guy, gives me a bottle of Gentleman Jack – for Christmas, I drink the whole thing, get shit-faced, pass out, wake up the next day, and it's Christmas Eve, right? God, it makes me sad thinking about this, man, really. This is like a real low for me right here. 
And I'm like, I tell my friend, I do the last of my heroin that I had. I have a rental car at this point because I totaled that the B, the BMW. And I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing for Christmas? Can I come hang out with you and your family? He's like, nah, not in the condition you're in, dude. He's like, you, you look like you're strung out and you smell like shit. I'm not bringing you around my family. I'm like, oh, I'm a little hurt by it, but whatever. I go up to my parents' house because they live in Santa Barbara. Hey, can I hang out with you guys for Christmas? They don't want to hang out with me. My mom is like, I'll give you 80 bucks. And she like slides $80 under the door. I'm like, well, what are you doing for Christmas? You don't want to hang out with your own son? They're like, no, not in the condition you're in. They say the same shit that he had said. I love you, but I can't open the door. And I'm like, but my mom gave me 80 bucks. I was like, all right. So I had a choice. I could go spend that on dope or I could go buy presents and make Christmas right for um, my ex-wife and her kid. So I go to the thrift store and I spend that money on presents for the kid. I get him a bike because in Santa Barbara, there's such rich people that they donate brand new, super expensive shit. So for like 50 bucks, you get like $2,000 worth of shit. I'm not even joking. No, I believe it. I believe it. Like brand new Nerf guns, bikes, all the shit. Did you spend, did you spend the whole 80 bucks on the kid or did you do half and half so you could get well? No, I, have any money for drugs uh i actually i bought him the rest of the money i bought her true crime novels because she's like a big reader and she likes like Anne rule books and shit but anyway i get that i get it wrapped and i'm stoked i'm like all right fucking saving christmas you know um i had a fentanyl patch and i'm like chewing on it like my boy gave me i forgot to say that but my boy gave me a fentanyl patch so it's like kind of holding me through but not really like i still feel like shit i head down to, to la we're living in north hollywood and i show up to our place and i'm like well santa came sick what do you mean i'm like I got your son some stuff and I showed, I like gave him the bike and all this. She was so stoked at the shit that I gave him. I gave him really nice stuff. And she's just looking at me incredulously, like, you know, doesn't believe that. I don't know. I don't know what she thinks. I was like, and I also got you these. And I gave her these books that were wrapped. I was like, did you get me anything? She's like, no. I was like, did you get me a card? She's like, nope. And I was like, okay, well, at least we're together. And she's like, where did you get the money for this shit? Like, did you steal this stuff? And I was like, I was like, nah, I, I got a thrift store in Santa Barbara. And she's like, wow. She's like, that's what kind of bitch of a man you are. You have to go to a thrift store to get presents. You're, you're a straight bitch. You're a failure. No wonder your parents don't want to be with you for Christmas. Cause you're a loser. And like, dude. So what did you do? For, for me not to get dope with that money was huge. So what I did is, and, I, and she's like, get out of here, loser. And she like, I was just like. Dude, that's the sad, it. that's such a sad story to me. Like, I, all, you have a <laughs> lot of fucking terrible fucking fucked up stories. But this one seems like it hits me in a sad, sad place. A sad Dan Aykroyd trading places Santa with the salmon under the fucking Santa, Santa coat fucking place because Christmas like that and she calls you the fucking bitch because you buy her 
child presence. This is, that's very sad to me. Anyway, so what'd you do? So I have no money, <laughs> you know, I have no money. All I have is this rental car, you know? I'm like, and I'm thinking about it too, you know, I'm like, okay, my parents don't want to hang out with me. My best friend doesn't want to hang out with me. My wife doesn't want to hang out with me. Fuck my life, dude. It's never going to not be like this. So I was like, I'm going to kill myself. And I got like, I got in my mind that that's what I was going to do. So I go down to Skid Row in my car and I just pull up to the spot. Black dude comes up to me because now it's like that down there. And I was like, hey, um, they, they got footballs. They're a point two. But I asked him for a grant. I was like, hey, I need a, I need a full one. And he spits a gram out of his mouth. He has a balloon in his mouth. I was like, let me see it. He's like, you got the money? I was like, let me see it. And I just grab it out of his hand and I fucking floor it. And I just get away. I end up getting away with the dope. He's just, you know, screaming at me, whatever. And I'm driving around and I'm crying because I'm in that state of despair, you know? And I'm like despondent and I just feel like shit. And I'm like, where should I kill myself? And I see this big red Bank of America sign. I'm like, $400 overdrafted there. I'm like, you know, just probably fuck these people for always overdrafting me when I'm living goddamn, you know, like the way that I am. This is the best place I can die. I go there. I write a suicide note to her, to my family, and I send it. I cook up the dope. It was actually really hard to get the full gram in the syringe took me a long time i was crying the whole time so it like made it even harder then i shot the dope i woke up the next day it's like five or six in the morning to the horn going i had nodded out onto the horn onto the horn and i just heard that sound and i felt so shitty you know it's like the worst hangover you could imagine and I mean, I really tried to, and then, you know, of course, you know, you hear this with people as God, man, you know, I can't even kill myself. Right. That's terrible. That's so sad, but things did look up, right? I mean, eventually someone optioned the, the rights to your book, right? I got the film deal for wasting talent. The guy that had produced and written the meth movie spun. Have you ever seen that movie? Sure. Crazy movie. Guy named Will De Los Santos. He read my book. He wanted to buy the rights. Got a film deal. When you got the was, film deal, you were in the bottoms of alcoholism, though. Did he know? Was it not a thing yeah. for him? Yeah, and he knew I was out on bail, and he didn't give a fuck. He's like, whatever. He's like, it makes it all the more interesting. He's, <laughs> right. He's, He's like, right. He's right. What? So it was crazy, man. You know, that's like, that was a game changer. I was no longer the writer. I was the writer with the movie deal. And that's a way different type of writer to be. And all of a sudden, all these doors start opening, you know? And I started getting taken seriously by a lot of people. And my alcoholism just got worse and worse and worse. My parents kicked me out. I was legitimately homeless at this point. The homeless, Karina, my- the homeless writer with the movie deal. Yeah. I lived, I had a, I walked around with a backpack and slept at parks and it was really awful time actually. But 
you know, and then I could go shower at her parents' house. She had just gotten out of a five-year relationship, so she was living with her parents. She's a year older than me. She was 32. I was 31. Um, and we end up breaking up, you know, drunken drama. I, I, I break up with her. And on my birthday, my friend rented a strip club. Rented, my friend's like a multi dude. This crackhead I know that inherited like 15 million or something like a couple years ago. He's just out of, he's still actively a crackhead, but he's just, his lifestyle is out of control. Takes like limos to the strip club and he's just out of control. But he ended up renting out the strip club for me and he's like, we're going to smoke as much crack as you can tonight. I was like, all right, cool. It was my birthday and I blew out a crackhead and she sends me a positive pregnancy test. Oh my God. As I'm blowing crack out, out on bail, I just got a film deal. And I'm just like, you know, and we were broken up. And the next day uh, I called her and I said, look, I, I believe in women's, a woman's choice in the matter. And if you want to have the child, I'm not promising that I'll be a good father, but I can promise that I'll try as hard as I can be to be one. I will never be, I'll never walk out of that child's life. I can promise that not intentionally anyway. And if you want to not go through with the pregnancy, I'll support you with that as well. But this doesn't mean that we're together. And it was my birthday. You know, I, I blew the crack kid out at midnight. So now it's the next day of my birthday. We hung out and for my birthday, we ended up going to Planned Parenthood, did all that shit. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, you want to have sex? She's like, okay. So we like made up, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and we slowly started getting back together and she got sober and she hadn't, she hadn't gotten sober for like, she's, I'm telling you the worst alcoholic I've ever met. And that's saying a lot. I've been around a lot of bad. No ones, shit. She's, no she's shit. a real bad. She's, she's the worst I've ever met. She's hardcore. And so she's pregnant now. We're squatting in abandoned houses um, we're dressing up in nice clothes, pretending like we're a cup. We both cleaned up well. We didn't look like addicts or alcoholics. We looked like totally preppy people. And we go pretend like we were going to buy a house. And we'd look for houses with stage furniture. Which was like I'd the like, perfect thing. It was the perfect thing for two addicts to play a part and to, to get over. It's like the, the best. And, and so I would go into the bathroom and unlatch the window. And then we'd go sleep there. We'd sleep in abandoned houses. And I, I was still drinking heavily. And uh, she was not. And I, I decided to stop out of solidarity for her, to support her. I thought it was unfair if I was still drinking and she, she was able to stop for our kid. We decided to keep it. And... Um, one night I was blacked out drunk right before I got sober and I just stopped. There was no detox. Well, we went to rehab once together too, but it was only for a few days. But, um, one night I was blacked out drunk and I had a complete emotional breakdown right. and there'd be this huge event with Danny Trejo to host it, like Robert Downey Jr. All these big ass fucking names were going to come, um, for prison reform. I'm starting a nonprofit. Anyway, 
doesn't really matter. I lost my mind and I end up going back to jail. I get beat up the first day that I'm in there because I'm still an egomaniac. You know who I am, you know, shit like that to like people in jail, like, you know, and three broken ribs, I'm kicking Suboxone this time, which is pretty shitty too. You know, it's like 10, it's not like methadone, but still it's pretty hardcore to come off Suboxone. I was injecting eight, um, or I mean, 10, eight, uh, 10, eight milligrams trips a day. Oh my God. I, I, I was addicted to injecting the suboxone. suboxone. I've heard about that. And there's a fucking, there's a ceiling, man. I was not doing anything after 24 milligrams. It's only so bioavailable, but I'm doing it just jumping through the motions of injecting something. Cause I'm that addicted to the needle. I was addicted to shooting spots for like three or four years, you know? And so, Prison's horrible, man. My third term was the worst one. 12 riots. I did 16 months altogether. I was in 12 riots. I got three broken ribs. I got 12 stitches. Uh, I got uh, a concussion. I, I got hit by mace probably five, six times. Got in individual fistfights. I missed the birth of Nico. It's the worst term I've done. It's traumatic as fuck. You, you got out it's, sober though, right? No, no. First day that I got out, I shot a Suboxone. I was doing drugs in there, right? I missed Nico's birth, my son. And I got home and I loved my son, but he didn't love me back. I missed the first year of his life and he fucking knew it. And everybody said it. My parents, my girl, everybody was like, he doesn't like you. He didn't. It took well over a year and a half for him to like fall in love with me. And like when that happened, it was a really beautiful thing. And now that's my son. You know, he loves me and we are inseparable and we do everything together, but it took a long time for him to accept that I wasn't just some stranger in his house that was, you know, fucking his mom all the time. It was a fucking kid. He was probably tripping. He's seeing me on top of her all the time, and kissing her. I mean, we don't have sex in pro. You know what I'm trying to say. I understand. <laughs> yes. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, this is the end of the story. This is the success. This is the end. This is fucking where it all went down and everything went happy, happily ever after, and now everything's good. Got out with nothing, bro. The one thing that my parents did for me while I was in prison is they sold us their car. My mom started getting bad, like dementia, and she couldn't drive anymore. She had a little X3 Beamer, like a 2005. Not a nice car, but not a bad car either. You know, a lot of people would be very happy to have a car like that. So I got that, and my parents were like, okay, you guys can stay here for two weeks, and then you got to go. Oh, and Nick Stahl, the actor, picked me up from prison, who's like one of my childhood heroes. Like, he's always been one of my favorite actors. He's my best friend now. But, like, he's like my brother. You know, we just collaborated on a film together, on a couple of films together. And, uh, but I'd never met him. He, he picked me up from prison. And I swear to God, that foreshadowed, like, what was to come, you know? He picked me up. I stayed in contact with him. He wrote me in prison, sent me money, sent me letters. Uh, all these film industry people really, like, 
looked out for me in prison. So I get out and my, my dad's like, I'll lend you money for first and last month's rent and a deposit, but you got to find a job. Finally, I got a job. I went to go try to get one to be a telemarketer because that's one of my skills that I'm good at is telemarketing. I was happy because they'll hire anybody, you know, straight drug addict job. Right I there. was terrible at telemarketing. I telemarketed oh. uh, concerts at that LA Philharmonic in LA. I was like the worst. I'd be like, oh, it doesn't really seem worth the money. I wouldn't buy the tickets. It was like, it was bad. But anyway, keep going. It was due to Mel was that the conductor. Keep surprises going. me because you run a successful podcast. I was, you would I, think was I was terrible. That surprises me. I, I would paint you as a, a dude that would be good at it. But anyway, my friend Seth Ferrante, who did 21 Years in the Feds, he's like, I want you to be on this podcast called American Dope. It's a YouTube show with Al Prophet. It's got 400,000 subscribers. You want to be on it? I had no idea what that meant. I didn't even know that that was a big deal to have that many subscribers. I didn't know shit about it. So I knew that I was going to be doing it on a Sunday. So that's a huge fucking break. It's a huge potential break. What happened with the uh, the telemarketing? It was horrible. I couldn't miss a paycheck. You know, like I couldn't afford to miss one fucking paycheck on a Friday. I knew I had out profit on Sunday. This dude bitches at me for uh, for taking a cigarette break. He's like, you know, you have to ask me, Leone. God. You're never going to get a raise to 1650 fucking three years from now if you keep acting like this. And he's just talking down to me and I'm looking at him and I'm looking at the other people. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it sounds bad, but I felt above him. You know, like I felt like I was better than this shit. Like I didn't need to take this shit. You, and had, I said, you, know you what? had all you could stand and you had too much other stuff that you dreamed of doing. And it was that moment. It, I just couldn't. I could, you know, yeah, I wanted to do more. And I said, you know what? fuck you bitch he's like huh i said yeah you fucking punk what's up and i was like just going cr- i sounded like a straight up like my prison persona like came out of me right i left i just got he's like pure have fun in unemployment asshole and i just walked out i swear dude swear to god this is fuck it's so weird how this happened i'm leaving and i'm in my car and i call my girl my babe, I quit. She's like, what? Hey, what are we going to do? Like, we need, like, we can't go without money like that. Like, it would really fuck us if I didn't bring a paycheck home, you know? And I said, I don't know. She's like, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. She's like, well, that's not a good enough answer. We have a fucking one-year-old kid here. That is not a good enough answer. And I was like, I'll figure it out. She's like, hang up, right? Changs up on me. Ten minutes later, I'm sitting there in silence. I'm not listening to the radio because the radio doesn't even work in my car. Just sitting there in silence and stuck in L.A. traffic. I get a phone call from my friend, Jonathan Shaw. He's a world-famous tattoo artist that I, I knew from the writing world. He's a, he's a, he's a well-known novelist now. He's friends with Johnny Depp. And he goes, hey, Ryan, how you doing? I was like, good. He's like, hey, I'm at Johnny. I'm at Johnny Depp's house right now. And your name came up and he read your book and he wants to meet you. 
can you come over to Johnny's house on Sunday? And I knew it was real, man, because I knew how, how close they were. I did. It's hard to process what he was saying, but I said, yeah, I'll be there. That Sunday I went on Al Prophet's show and I went on, and then I went to Johnny Depp's house and I spent like fucking 13 hours with Johnny hit it off, became really good friends with him. He gave me Hunter S. Thompson's cigarette holder. Told me he was passing the gonzo torch to me. Insane. It's pretty magical, right? And I have not worked. I've not worked one day for somebody else since then. And that was like almost two years ago. Wow. And in that, you know, um, that the, the epilogue in that time I started my own YouTube channel. That's what happened. That guy, Al Prophet, started lending me money. He's like, dude, here's money until you get on your feet. That guy totally looked out for me. I put out a comedy album with Johnny Depp and Tommy Chong, made money off that. Then the YouTube kind of started doing really well. Then I got on Patreon and then I sold two screenplays and then I got a three book deal with Mickey Avalon. And then Johnny asked me to write the new Fear and Loathing with him. And then the documentary got fully fucking financed again. Now it's coming out. Everything just came together, man. The thing, I mean, that's fucking insanity and like amazing and like, you know, I'm incredibly impressed, a little bit jealous, very happy that it worked out. But the thing that interests me, because you've always been in my periphery, you know what I mean? Like I knew you through Amy. I, I, we had talked here and there on social media, like you're obviously a person involved with drugs and addiction. And when I would check in on you, like I would see, oh, I just stopped smoking weed or, oh, I just stopped smoking cigarettes or, oh, you know what I mean? Like it was back steps, forward steps, whatever. In your success, you made these decisions to, to change these aspects. Like, why did you do that? You're working with Tommy Chong and Johnny Depp and there is you know, like a certain glamour to not being completely sober, what made you start even walking the path a little bit more true? Oh man, I got, I got a definitive answer for that. So I relapsed in the middle of all of it on heroin. I went out bad, you know, and, and it wasn't intentional at all. The weirdest thing, the universe wanted me to relapse, I think, because I ran into a dude that I hadn't seen in like eight or nine years that owed me $200. I ran into him down here in LA. I knew him in a different city. Some Mexican dude that I went to rehab with. And I saw him one day and he lives, he just happens to live a few blocks from here. Coincidentally. I'm like, where's my 200 bucks? He tried to act like we were all cool at the time. It was when we were at food banks. So I needed money so bad, you know, and like I was like trying to get the money owed me out. You know, he had burned me for two hundred dollars like years ago for like heroin. He's like, I can pay you Friday when I get paid. So I go to get the money to go pick it up. He gives me one hundred dollars cash and a gram of heroin. Mm. I was like, what the fuck is this? He's like, just sell it. I'm like and I'm on Suboxone at the time. Right. And I'm like. okay. I knew damn well that I was going to do that heroin. The junkie mind is cunning. Tricked It tricked me. And I went out on this insane run, right? This horrible run. I was shooting two grams a day. Bam. And uh, 
What? Yeah, baby at home. Yeah. And oh yeah. And my girl, it was to the point where she's like, I love you, but I love our kid more. And I'm not going to allow you to do this when you have a son for the sake that it's bad for him to be around it. And it's bad because you might die and he's going to grow up without a dad. But I, at that point, I was so fucking strung out. And this is the problem. I was on YouTube at the time. And I was sober before that. And I relapsed in the midst of it. And people on YouTube knew it. They started calling me out on it. And I'd be like, no, you know, as I'm like making pirate noises and shit. And this is what happened. This is how I got clean. This happened, God, man, almost two... No, 18 months. That's fine. I've been I've been I've been off heroin for like 18 months now. And so but this is what happened. In the middle of that run, the last heroin run that I've been on, hopefully ever, you know. Um I get a phone call at eight in the morning. And I'm glad you asked this because this is the most important thing in my whole story. I get a phone call from Monterey and get one. I think it's a telemarketer. It's like eight in the morning. I'm up early to do heroin because, you know, I'm in a habit. I'm making a shot like on the stove. Get another call. Don't pick up. Then my best, closest brother, who I who just had been through thick and thin with, his girlfriend or his fiance calls me from Facebook Messenger, and I knew I knew right there and then. I knew that he was dead. I knew it. This is a dude that every time I've been to prison, he writes me almost every every fucking week, send me pictures. But um, money is a brother to me. We, you know, I talked on the phone every single day for about I don't know the last sixteen, seventeen years. He's been like one of the closest people in my life, right? And at the end of his life, we were talking every single day on the phone. And she called and I said, don't tell me what I think you're going to say. And she said, you know, we lost him. And I was strung out. So I couldn't process that right then. I had to go read his eulogy. I had to go up and go to his funeral. Shortly thereafter that, my girl gave me the ultimatum. She's like, look, it's real. You, know, you, you just lost your best friend to it. You're sticking fucking needles in yourself. You know, you're not that lucky. Like one of these days, this thing's going to kill you. And if you don't stop, I'm taking, I'm taking our son. And I'm, I'm leaving you. And she meant it. And I checked myself into detox I did, I did it like on YouTube live and I was like, I'm, I'm going to get help. And I was able to get off of it. But the reason I was able to stay off of it is because when I came to, I was in so much pain from losing Paul. And like, you know, when you lose somebody, you start thinking about all the things you could have done differently. Like, mm -hmm. fuck, I should have supported his art more at the end. You know, I should have been there more at the end. I should have encouraged him. I shouldn't have glorified drugs. I shouldn't have made it a joke with him all the time. I should have just been there and told him what he was actually doing. And it was just so painful. It reminded me of that time in the cell 
where I had to sit there in my own emotions with right. no conduits of comfort. And it's kept me sober because there was that spiritual bottom that I think is necessary. However you get there, everybody's bottom's different. A bottom can be getting a fucking DUI. It doesn't matter what it is. Only you know what your bottom is. And so uh, the last thing I'll say is I got him tattooed. Well, this isn't recorded, but I got him. I got a portrait of him right here. Um, And I decided to start a nonprofit called the Paul Project that gives Narcan for free nationally. With all the other projects that I've had, it was like impossible to juggle it all. But I found somebody that started the first needle exchange in Orange County. She came on board two weeks ago. We got it all together. And what my concept for the nonprofit's going to be, it's in honor of, of my late friend, Paul, who I, I miss big time. There's so much footage of him in our documentary. And thank God, like I got to get an interview out of him for the film before he passed. But, um, and I'm donating a lot of the proceeds that I would be getting to his feet, to his widow. And the concept is that you donate to the nonprofit you send a photograph and a story of the person you lost. And depending on what kind of pledge or kind of donation you get, we send that picture and that story with a, with a box of Narcan to as many people. You know, if you put a thousand dollars, it'll be a hundred people, whatever, however we end up working it out. But that's my idea. And that's ultimately what I want to do just to pay the karmic debt, you know, sure, like sure. to repair some of the, some of the bad shit that I put in the universe. I want to put something good into it, you know? Yeah. I've been, I've been good for, um, almost a year and a half now. I mean, I don't celebrate clean dates or anything. Um, but I do stay balanced within mind, body, spirit, and I am conscientious of it. And like, I don't smoke pot anymore. Um, I gave that up. I quit smoking cigarettes. I'm very proud of that. That was that was recent. I'm vaping. That's it. Uh, no, you. no, no altering substances at all. And you dude, know? dude, I mean, like, you're not working like a regular program. I just want to say, like, your story's insane. That's easily the longest interview I ever did. I'm like the the drug addict Joe Rogan over here. Um, <laughs> but uh, I know that, like, I care that you like stay on the path. So, like, if there's anything that, like, I can ever do, reach out, you know, if you like anything. And also, like, sometimes it's hard to stay on the right path on your own devices, right? So just, like, know that there's a world out there that wants to, like, be a part of your recovery, you know, in whatever way. Fuck it. You know what I'm saying? I heard you on the Simon Rex show, and this is what freaked me out. I heard you on Simon, Nervous Rex, one of the best names for a podcast I ever heard. Um, and I heard you on that show, and at the end, you said, like, yeah, I'd do psychedelics again, never say never. And earlier in the story, you said when you uh, tripped that you had, were, like, in meetings, and you opened that door, like, a tiny millimeter, and it was like, bam. So I'm just at saying. That, at that point, at, on, during the Simon Rex, I was on Suboxone during that time period. Right, right. And. It look at ab like you know I'm in that abstinence trip again or like no mind altering substances because that's what worked for me the most success I've ever found in recovery was 
been all or nothing. You know, when I try to modify it to what I want, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to smoke pot and I'm going to take ecstasy when I want, when I try to do things my way, it doesn't fucking work. So that was a year ago. The way that I'm thinking now is a lot different. And I was able to get off Suboxone. Nice. You know, I, I didn't want to. Add, yeah. How'd you do it? Kratom. Are you still kratom. on the Kratom? Yeah. Be careful with the fucking Kratom. Be careful. I was, I was just reading about Kratom last night. My point is only like fucking love. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love your story. And um, mm-hmm. you, know what, you know what I'm saying, right? You, you understand yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Kratom uh, was the last like thing, I guess. But, dude, to get off the box and it was so difficult. But, you know, then there, the Kratom was like the last the last thing. Um, and then I stopped recently. I saw that. Got, yeah. And got deathly fucking ill, man. And like. I didn't even realize that it was so something. That, yeah, I did. I didn't know. I didn't know. And that's recent. This is something that like I was dealing with like a week ago. So, um, but yeah, as far as like substances past that, like marijuana, anything like that, I'm done with all of that. And I'm, I'm trying to not be on anything. Kratom's like the last thing that, that I've had to struggle with. You so know? you, you kicked Kratom and you went and withdraw from the Kratom. Yeah. Yep. And then you started, do, how do you take the Kratom? I just take capsules. Like pills. And you still take it? Yeah. All right. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I have, I, I think you can get off. I mean, like, do you want to get off the Kratom? You should get off the phone. Yeah. Kratom. No, Fuck absolutely. You know? I, I think that Kratom is a bad thing. And I don't think that anyone should do it. Uh, you know, but I'm just being, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Dude, so, you don't, yeah. you don't have to lie to me. I don't, it's, it's like, who am I? But the real thing is like, this is the thing. And I'm not Mr. Fucking preachy, whatever. I believe you're going to get off the Kratom. You got to find something to replace it with something else and not a substance. It doesn't fitness. have to, it doesn't have to be, it could be fitness. It could be writing. Fitness. It could be your fitness. Family. Fitness is what does it for me. I broke my hand last summer and now I'm just getting back into it, but that's what works for me. Fitness is the replacement, the dopamine, the endorphin, uh, replacement. I need to replenish it with that stuff because there's been so much fucking depletion, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I've been, I, you know, yeah, I, I've been on Kratom, but that's how I got off the subs, you know? So it's like, yeah, I don't know. I get uh, it. It's trading down thing. Did you have a good time, Ryan? Yeah, no, I had a great time. Post it in its totality. I want people to be at the end of it, like right now. And like, you get to the very end, they're like, "Oh, the fuckers on Kratom, I'm fucking no, <laughs> you know." But uh, exactly. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. Um, can I do my little sleazy plugs at the end? Do them. I'll put it in the description too. But do every plug. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. I have Patreon, which is an extension of that YouTube channel. My book's called Wasting Talent. And basically, my social media is Ryan Leone85, Instagram, Twitter. And Dave, thank you so much for having me on. I had a great time. I think you asked incredibly important questions, which was refreshing because I've done a lot of these stories so many times. Nobody asks me, like, the real question. The story is fucking off the wall. 
Uh, Wasting Talent is a bombastic, dopey romp. I put a review on Amazon today. At the end of every episode of Dopey, we say, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Because Chris always needed to say toodles, and I hated that he had to say toodles. So Stay, stay, stay strong for Dopey Nation and toodles for Chris. That's it. Thanks, Ryan. And, and Palabra for me. And Palabra. What's Palabra all about? That's my... Uh... That's just my signatory slogan, like you guys have. Like, that's mine, palabra. That means word in Spanish. There's this whole thing behind it. I don't know. It's on the YouTube stuff. But so anyway. find Ryan on YouTube, palabra. Stay strong, dopey nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. Thank you. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had Suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had